0: Okay, so you guys know a lot about myofascial pain syndrome. I was just saying that to somebody else. You may not know you do, but you know a lot about it. So have you guys learned trigger points?
1: Yeah.
0: See, you know all kinds about myofascial pain syndrome. So myofascial pain syndrome is exactly that. So it's a trigger point found in a muscle that causes pain. Now, they say myofascial pain because that's where it's coming from. It's coming from a myofascial structure. So muscles and it's not really coming from fascia, but from a muscular structure. The pain syndrome, the syndrome just means there's no true um, pathology, meaning if you did an ultrasound, an x-ray, an MRI, a CT scan, there would be no signs, right? There's nothing actually wrong. So when you hear the word syndrome, it means there's actually no diagnostic pathology going on like irritable bowel syndrome, you guys learned last semester, right? All your tests come back negative, which is why they don't know how to diagnose it, unless it's based on symptomology. So here, this is exactly the same. You do not have any true pathology going on, but you have pain. So what do you guys know about trigger points? So there's a very specific referral pattern, right? Everybody kind of has a similar, and I'm gonna say most people have a similar referral pattern because not everybody falls in that, Typical, but Travell and Simons is that kind of our Bible for trigger point referral patterns. So, anything else we know about trigger points? Response. You will oftentimes, so what kind of autonomic response will you have? Sweating. Oftentimes it'll be sweating, yep. Anything else? Ken, yep. What's that?
2: Dizziness
0: or nausea, you could, yep. It's possible that you have decreased strength or decreased range of motion. Now, you could have full range of motion and still have a trigger point, but it may be limited. So that's not really a true kind of diagnostic criteria. And you, you may have weakness, but you may not, right? Usually the weakness is associated to the pain. It's not because the muscle's actually not working. Anything else you guys know about trigger points? A nodule and a taut band that can
3: elicit
0: a twitch response. Exactly. A taut band In muscle that you can palpate and you notice a a twitch response and the twitch response is usually fairly close to the top band. okay so that's classic let's just say someone says I'm hurting here and you're palpating around and you're not feeling any kind of lumpy bumpy stuff and when you're palpating as well you're not seeing a twitch response what might that be could be adhesions could be a muscle
4: what? Oh, I see.
0: Okay, um, it, it could be like, or even just a strain. Anything else that it could be? So let's just say, like I'm saying here's pain and I'm palpating. Oh, I see you could be in the referral pattern. Okay. Right. Right, rhomboids referral pattern is usually kind of localized though, right? Anything else? It could be, you would probably see that visually. Could be, you'd probably see that oh, visceral referral. It could be a visceral referral for sure. Um, it could just be a tight muscle that's hypertonic without actually being a true trigger point. Is there anything else you guys can think of? So let's say it's not a trigger point. What's one of your other differential diagnosis? What's another thing you might think of clinically? If someone talks about lots of tender spots in their body. Could be maybe like a thyroid issue because that oftentimes can cause MSK issues. Anything else you might be thinking about? Like, you know, there's like 15 points that are super Lines tender, red but red no red nodules. Red yeah. Okay, so when we talk about tender points or painful points, if there is no top end and there's no twitch response, one of the first things you do think about is going to be fibromyalgia. So then you go and palpate those 17 or 19 tender points to see if you've got at least 11. Because 11 out of the 19 is basically how they diagnose it, right? Along with poor sleep. Yeah. Um, I think we learned a class but that doesn't get done anymore. Yeah, Ian, American do.
5: couldn't depression also cause more of that, since someone's
0: really depressed. Psychosomatic stuff. For sure, anxiety and depression can absolutely cause psycholo- or physical issues, um, but you won't necessarily have, with fibromyalgia, it's still taken into consideration the tender points, it's not the only thing that's looked at anymore. Before it used to be if you had 11 over the 19, that's it, you were diagnosed with it. But now they also look at, they'll usually do a sleep study, they look at your sleep patterns, they look at psychological aspects and they'll usually do psycholo- psychological testing. So you're right, that's not the only thing they look at, it's now one of a group of things that they look at. Okay, so what are some trigger points? What are some common trigger points you guys think you're going to be dealing with? Okay, so what's it refer to? What's the referral? Yeah, so, so when people talk about headaches in the temples, when people talk about headaches, you want to ask... Okay, you can ask if it's bilateral, but where do you have your headache? Because if my headache's here, what are you thinking? Splenius capitis. If my headache is behind the eye, what am I thinking? Uh, suboccipitals are here, here. Behind the eyes, what are you thinking? Temporalis Temporalis is a little bit more around the temples, so you're usually thinking splenius services. If you're thinking in the temples, you're oftentimes thinking upper traps, or you can think temporalis, right? So... It's really important to know your referral patterns, especially when it comes to people having headaches because they say 90% of headaches come from the neck, whether it's myofascial or whether it's joint related. So it's really important to know those referral patterns. Okay, so we talked a lot about this. We should talk a little bit about active latent and side-light trigger points. So an active trigger point means if I'm not moving, I have pain. If I'm moving, I have pain. It is active, it hurts, all the time, okay? What does a latent trigger point mean? It's basically asleep. So what does that mean? If it's latent, or on palpation. So it doesn't bug you. You don't come in complaining to me of pain. And all of a sudden I start working on you, like, oh my God, that hurts. That could be a latent trigger point. Now a satellite trigger point could be one of two things. Either it's in the referral pattern of the original trigger point, or it could be secondary, so a second trigger point in the original muscle. So those, satellite can be a little bit different. So typically, why would you get a trigger point upper traps, for example? Why is that such a common one that we see? Because people are like this, right? Why do you get common trigger points in suboccipitals, for example? Because people are like this, right? They walk around like this. (laughs) So, now if people talk about headaches here, When you do this, you're activating suboccipitals so they can create trigger points. But is there anything else that's working with it? What about the upper cross syndrome? Sternocleidomastoid, right? So you as massage therapists, if by chance, lots of people don't like having work on the anterior aspect of their neck. So I usually wait until once I find that there's stuff going on in suboccipitals, you have to look at sternocleidomastoid because when suboccipitals, when they get activated, it's because that head tilt goes anteriorly. When that head tilt goes anteriorly, SCMs are automatically contracted, they're shortened. So you can't really have one without the other. So make sure you do work on suboccipitals and sternocleidomastoid, because those are really important. Okay, so we talked about the top band. We talked about the twitch response. That's really important because if you don't have that, it's probably not a trigger point. You might be looking at a strain. You might be looking at some possibly fibromyalgia. A reproducible referral pattern, which means every time you press on it, it goes to the same referral pattern. Not that one time it's here and then, oh, then it's behind my eyes. and Oh, now it's in my forehead. and Oh, now it's in my throat, right? Now, speaking of that, what kind of referral pattern would give you difficulty swallowing, dysphagia? Sternocleidomastoid. So that's a big one. So that is one of our red flags, for example, for esophageal cancer. But if you can palpate SCM and rule out that it's not a trigger point, you may be thinking about more visceral issues or cancer, right, so that's a really important one to look at. Okay, so we're gonna talk about decreased range of motion and possible weakness. You don't have to have it, but you can. Um, and then <coughs> some other, Extra symptoms that are possible. (coughs) So, you can have numbness, you can have throbbing, you can have tingling associated with the pain. You may not. So, if someone came in and complained of, let's say, numbness and tingling around their wrist, what do you think? What's the first thing you would think of? Numbness and tingling around their wrist? Yeah. Yeah. When you think numbness and tingling, what's the first thing that's on your list? Okay, so neuro. Does that follow a referral pattern of a peripheral nerve or a nerve root? No. No. Maybe it's a sclerotomal pattern, but maybe it is. So, if it's not following a peripheral nerve or a nerve root, you still need to rule out your neuro, right? But if you've now ruled out your neuro, what other kinds of structures, okay, we talked about trigger points, that can cause numbness and tingling, is there anything else that can cause numbness and tingling? So you ruled out it's not neurological.
2: Blood circulation?
0: Okay, it could be. Um, Usually that's a little bit more of a throb and a really vague, dull pain and then you'll have some cold, right? The hands will be bluer or colder. But it could be. Anything else you're thinking of? Other than trigger points. fascial issues fascial issues it distally can cause tingling kind of sensation. So just keep that in mind, right? It's not always black and white, it's not always neural. So if you've ruled out neural, be confident that you've done all the testing and move on to what else it can be because it may not be neurological. All right, we talked about all that, that's fine. Okay, so what do you guys do for somebody that has a trigger point? You do what?
1: Warm
0: first. Okay, you warm up the tissue, you're doing lots of petrissages, you've got hyperemia, you could do stripping, or you could do some ischemic compression. You could, yeah, definitely I would agree with stretching it afterwards. I would definitely apply heat prior to, you can apply heat after, but you can also apply cold after. You can't apply cold after, especially if you're doing ischemic compressions because for a lot of people it's tender. What pain level are you going up to when you're doing? Yeah, 6-7 ideally, right? So let's just say if you were thinking about something else other than the things you just listed, is there anything else you guys think that could help? Stretching, so we talked about that. Anything else? Definitely postural education is going to be really huge because chances are that's probably why you've got a trigger point unless I don't know, you were the weekend warrior and just did something crazy over the weekend. Anything else? Anything else you guys would want to do as part of your treatment? Yep, you could. DDB, yep. Anything else? Yeah, you could definitely do some fascial techniques for sure because if there's trigger points, that means there's some adhesions going on, right? Anything else? Yeah. You could, sure. You could do some hold relax possibly. I don't, know what you want. I don't know. Keep going. Is yeah. there anything else? There may not be anything else. You guys tell me what you think. Absolutely. That's, That's it. Okay. So I always <laughs> believe that muscles cross joints, right? Yeah. So if you've got... A hypertonic structure, two bones, it's really tight. What's happening to the joint? It's being compressed. So I am a true firm believer that if you're working muscles, you got to work joints unless it's a conjugation or precaution. So I would strongly recommend that you do some traction or MOBS in addition as well because if you've got the tightness, you've got the extra pressure in the joint which means the joint is not working well. If the joint's not working well, you can release the tension on the muscle but what happens to the joint? It may never get right again which then means the muscle's going to want to compensate and try and stay tight. So you're really not addressing the whole situation. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of the other things. So, Shockwave, actually, according to the research, Shockwave is actually one of the best techniques they're now saying for trigger points. Shockwave's really expensive. I think the machines now are going for about twenty dollars to $25,000. Like they're really, oh yeah, they're super expensive. They may be coming down in price. Last time I looked at it, that's how much they were. That was a year and a half ago. But they're really expensive. So, it's not very common. Not a lot of clinics have them. There are some clinics around that do have them, but it's not very common like it would be with interferential current or ultrasound and those techniques. Oh yeah they definitely, uh, yeah and there's a couple of chiro clinics around, there's a couple of other physio clinics that have them, there are, are, they are around, they're just not super common. So if you guys decide to take additional training after this program and you decide to do acupuncture for example, so if you take some of the um, acupuncture courses at MAC for example, they are musculoskeletal acupuncture courses, which essentially is dry needling. So dry needling, just I'm quickly tell you a little bit about the difference between dry needling and acupuncture. Acupuncture deals with meridians. So the idea is that you're figuring out what meridians are affected and then you're working with the yin and the yang, so the opposite af- aspect to increase the chi, to increase your energy flow. Whereas dry needling, you're literally going right into the trigger point. Okay, so with dry needling, you can go into the trigger point, leave it for a few minutes, and then take it back out, and you can go back in, leave it for a couple of, or you can take it in, you can stimulate, take it out, put it in, stimulate. There's also a thing called intramuscular stimulation, which there's no research for this because it's a really new technique, but it's basically where you thread the trigger point. So you take the needle, you go in, and then you go in and out, in and out, in and out, and you just keep going at it. The needles are tiny, so the amount of damage it's causing is so microscopic that it doesn't end up causing scar tissue, but it is very painful. So um, if your patient doesn't have really good pain tolerance, I don't suggest doing the IMS, doing the intramuscular stimulation, but dry needling is actually really, really great. If anybody wants to do the acupuncture as well with it, that would be really helpful. Local anesthetics, what kind of things could we use? Because ice, perfect, anything else? DDB yeah, yeah your vibrations, can you guys use different types of creams that have different things in it for example like peppermints and things like that as long as nobody has any major sensitivity to a sense. So some of those things can be analgesics as well so you can add some of those things either as in your lotion or you can actually just use rubs that are already created like A535 for example. And muscle relaxants would not be something we would prescribe but you could recommend that they go back to their GP. If you've treated it a few times and it hasn't gotten better, they can go back to their MD and request that because that usually will also help. Okay, so we talked a little bit about hypothyroidism. So if someone comes in with a lot of aches and pains and it's kind of in let's say four, five, six different areas and you're not having an effect on it. Think of things that are system, either go back to your treatment plan and figure out is your clinical impression correct? Was your assessment correct? But if it was, then really start thinking about systemic issues because thyroids are actually very common. I don't, for those, You guys are all in clinic now. So how many people have treated people with on meds? thyroxin? yeah. It's super common. So you will probably have, you will have these patients in clinic. And chances are, they may not be diagnosed yet. So if you're noticing that they're really fatigued, they're not feeling well, and they've got mass amounts of area, meaning four or five different areas that are really tender, and your treatments aren't having a huge effect, they might feel better for a day or two, but it's not lasting, and it doesn't keep getting better and better and better, you might wanna refer out to get their T3 and T4 assessed. So that's important. Okay, so these are just pictures of trigger points, which you guys know all about it. So. You guys know all about it.
4: (laughs) Trigger points are caused by muscle injury. Muscles can be injured suddenly in accidents, or damage can occur slowly due to repeated movements or poor posture. A muscle is composed of tiny fibers, which contract and relax in response to messages from the brain. When muscle fibers become injured or overstimulated, they cannot relax and form contraction knots. A trigger point consists of many contraction knots where individual muscle fibers contract and cannot relax. Fibers extending from the trigger point to the muscle attachments shorten and form a tight band. The persistent contraction of muscle fibers compresses blood vessels and decreases their blood supply, leading to oxygen starvation and the accumulation of waste products. This irritates nerves and causes pain. Activated pain receptors generate specific referred pain patterns, depending on nerve passage and muscle anatomy.
0: I know you guys love the voice. Okay from here on well actually and myofascial pain syndrome you're going to see all the time. So let's talk actually about clinical impressions. Um, Has anybody put as a clinical impression myofascial pain syndrome? It um, when you start looking at different people's clinical notes it is very overused I will just say. So when you look at most um, chiros, physios, osteopaths, massage therapists, when you're looking at their notes, you're going to see myofascial pain syndrome everywhere. Which we understand that that means there's trigger points. Not everybody kind of follows that true definition. If they have pain in an area, the necks or the neck, sho- neck and shoulder are tight. Let's say they're working at a computer and the upper traps are super tight. You'll see myofascial pain syndrome in the neck shoulders or myofascial pain syndrome of upper traps. So just be prepared. Out in the real world, sometimes that term gets misused. It just means that there's a muscular tightness in the area that's causing some discomfort, but it may not be a true trigger point. So just be aware of that. Okay, osteoarthritis. You are going to see this weekly if not more often than that. So when we say OA, it means osteoarthritis, which is also known as DJD, so Degenerative Joint Disease. So right after this, we're going to learn DDD. DDD, Degenerative Disc Disease, is not exactly the same. It's a... Same process but happening in a different structure. So, osteoarthritis, osteo always means bone, arthro always means joint, and inflammation is the itis. So, here's the thing it's a misnomer because degenerative joint disease, what does the word disease mean to you guys? It means there's a pathology, right? So there's a problem. So we call this a misnomer because, in fact, there's actually no true disease. It's degenerative. We are all going to have osteoarthritis at some point in our lives. Whether we develop it in our 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, you're going to develop it at some point. We all get it. So I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but essentially it's not that big of a deal because we're all going to have it at some point when people get diagnosed with osteoarthritis they believe it is a really big deal and it can be in the fact that if they're not moving then it's going to continue to degenerate so education is going to be really important on this one now we used to believe this was a wear and tear issue It is not. There's two types of osteoarthritis. There's a primary osteoarthritis, which basically means the articular cartilage degrades because there is some defect in the cartilage. But the defect is mild, and it takes years and years and years and years for that defect to become a major issue. So it could be in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s before you start to see this. But at some point, there was a defect in the articular cartilage, so that's primary. Primary already always means it's not caused by something else. It's just it happens on its own, right? And then there's secondary OA, osteoarthritis. So can you think of who would have secondary osteoarthritis? Yeah. osteoporosis. Um, not necessarily. I mean, because of the older age, possibly, but not because of the osteoporosis, not because of the disease. It would probably happen together.
3: basketball players. Well, surgeries
0: or, like, Okay, what did you guys learn about Raynaud's what was it what was what was a secondary Raynaud's? There was primary Raynaud's which it's just a neurovascular issue, right? We don't really know why you have it, right? And then there's the syndrome. So you have the phenomenon which is primary then you have the syndrome which is secondary. So what, what was the cause of the secondary? So anytime we say secondary, it always means it's after another disease. Always, always, always. So if I say there's secondary OA, that means osteoarthritis, degeneration of that joint occurred because of another disease. So can you think of another disease that might put excessive stress on a joint? Okay, yes. So, lack of mobility for a prolonged period of time would definitely do it. What about if anybody has any fusions? What if I have a. Oh, okay, well, scoliosis is another one, but let's give me a second and talk about fusions for a second. So, I've got a patient that has low back from L2 to L5 fused, been fused since she was a teenager. So, now she's in her, she just turned 40. So what's going on with L5S1, which is not fused, and what's going on with L1L2, which is not fused? So L1, L2 and L5S1 have to make up for the movement of L2, 3, 3, 4, 4, 5. Because L2 to 5 is not moving. So above and below has to take a little bit more of that movement. So what happens to those joints above and below? Well they move a little bit more, they take a little bit more of the pressure, so they degenerate a little bit quicker. So that would be a secondary osteoarthritis because it's caused by a different disease. If she hadn't had the f- spinal fusion, would she have that OA at 40? Probably not. So we're going to talk about some other arthritis, for example, today. So we're going to talk about rheumatoid arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis likes to affect hands and, and feet. So let's just say that my feet, let's just say I have rheumatoid arthritis, and my feet look like this. Okay? And my knees are also affected. So I've got my joints being destroyed at the knees and my joints being destroyed at the feet, and my feet look like this. How am I going to walk? Am I going to walk normal? How much am I going to have different pressures in my hips, in my low back, in my SI joints? So, what's going to happen in my hips? My SI, my lumbar spine, it's gonna generate faster. So is that a secondary osteoarthritis? Yeah, because I wouldn't have had that if I didn't have my claw toe and I didn't have the issues going on with the knees, the hands and the feet. Okay, so we really need to know our primary, hint, hint, our primary and secondary OA. Okay, so secondary is always caused by a secondary issue, a different disease. So this is usually a disease of older individuals because the more you, use the joints, the more likely you are to damage the articular cartilage, the more likely you are to degrade the articular cartilage. However, they've noticed that in men, this can happen as early as your 30s, 40s and 50s, depending on how aggressive you've been on your joints. In women, it is more common to happen after postmenopause. So in est- the estrogen, the increased estrogen before menopause actually protects our connective tissues and hyaline cartilage or articular cartilage is connective tissue. So in fact, most women don't develop OA, primary OA until after menopause, whereas men can de- develop it before. Okay, so that's important to know. But yeah, it is something that you'll typically see in your 50s, 60s, and 70s more commonly, but you could see it as early as your 30s. You could see it as early as your 40s. Okay. Um, Yeah. Smoking's basically a cause for everything. Okay, so let's draw this out. So, I have articular cartilage right here on the epiphysis of each bone. What happens if my articular cartilage starts to get degraded. Okay, so if this starts to degrade, you now start to decrease the space between these bones. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah. So that articular cartilage, let's just say it's gonna be as thick as my baby finger, which it's not, but you have that much space that's now starting to thin and wear away. So now those epiphyses are going to be a lot closer. If they're going to be a lot closer, what's going to happen to the synovial fluid in the joint? Eventually, but it's going to become compressed. So when it's compressed, is it going to be able to move fluidly to bathe the joint, nourish everything? No, So which is now going to create even more degeneration. And then eventually, the the joint's going to say, oh my god, this isn't normal and I'm squeezing here and I'm putting pressure on the ends of the bone. So what do I want to do as bone? What is Wolff's Law? I lay down bone. So what ends up happening is now because there's additional pressure in this joint, I want to start to lay down bone on the ends of the epiphyses. Okay? It looks like teeth. We call these osteophytes. If you see osteophytes on an x-ray, it is osteoarthritis, period, okay? So you can have osteophytes growing on either end. And they, like I said, they basically look like teeth. Eventually, and we're talking about, like, takes 20, 30, 40 years. Eventually, what can happen is these osteophytes can continue to grow as the pressure increases because as the joint continues to degenerate there's going to be more pressure so it's going to try and stabilize it and eventually what will happen it's going to fuse what's the word we use for fusion ankylosing or ankylosis ankylosing means fusion so, that would be a long term sequela of osteoarthritis. Okay? You will definitely see osteophytes on an x ray. It is really easy to see. Pretty sure. So. Didn't you draw them for like in assessment last semester?
3: Like, yeah. On the, on the vertebrae, though? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Like, like, cat- We're getting to that. Next one. Oh, sorry, Next sorry. one. Sorry. We're going to get to that. I'm but I yes. Yes. So, when we look at the x ray here, Can you guys see a nice, clear, crisp, grey line? Okay, these are good joints, those are really, that's not too bad, nice and crisp, nice and crisp, nice and crisp. What is going on here?
2: Not good. (sighs)
0: Not good. The ends of the bone are sclerotic, they're very white. So you should see an epiphysis and then a gray line because it's a joint and then an epiphysis again which would be white. But here, I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a little bit of a joint line here but here it's messy. What's going on here? Look at that little tooth right there. That's a a really good one. A little tooth right here. A little tooth forming right here. So this is a really good example. Where most commonly do you think osteoarthritis will affect? It likes the small joints of the hands and feet for sure, but it also likes weight-bearing joints. So You can find it in the spine. You can find it in the SI. Hips, knees are big ones. You can have it in the shoulders. It's not super common. It would have to be from repetitive stress if you had it in the shoulders. So if you were like a javelin thrower or a shot putter or a volleyball player. But typically it likes the small joints of the hands and feet, knees, ankles, hips, and then primarily low back. Now, there is one specific area in the cervical spine it really likes. Do you guys know what that is? It is. Why? <laughs> There's a motive. It's true. So if you were to have joint disease in the cervical spine, it would be at C5, C6. So true. Otherwise, it likes the pips and dips. Now, this is another hint, hint, really important thing. So the dips here are affected, and you can see it through the x-rays. When the dips are affected, okay? the inflammation that's going on here, the itis that's going on, is that all the soft tissues underneath are going to become inflamed as the joints degenerating. Okay? So, what will it look like around this area? It's going to look enlarged. It may look swollen when it's active, but it's not always inflamed. If you look at an 80-year-old's hand, what does it look like? Or a 90-year-old's hand, what does it look like? Like, if you look at the dips, it might look really bulbous, right? And if you look at the pips, it might look really bulbous. That's a classic sign when you're looking at somebody's hand that there is osteoarthritis of the fingers. So please remember, OA affects dips and pips. Dips and pips. Because we're going to talk about another disease that does not affect dips. And I would ask a question like that coming up. Okay, so it likes the small small joints in the hands and feet, dips and pips. It really likes the metacarpal, first metacarpal phalangeal joint. And first metacarpal, um, oh my god. Yeah, metacarpal phalangeal joint, yeah, yeah. Um, As massage therapists, that would be, especially if you're using a lot of thumbs, that would be an area that you're going to degrade. So stay away from that, if you can. Okay, yes. So, the muscles involved, the
3: muscles
0: you need to stabilize aren't at all, so... Okay, so... How, how do mm-hmm. I feel about it? She does how thing. do you... What do you think is the most important thing in someone that's degenerating a joint? So already you know that there's a lot of pressure with the synovium, and it's not bathing the joint properly. You already know that they're probably not moving because they're in pain. So, you've got these osteophytes that are forming and you've got contractures that are happening which are causing more pressure, which is going to cause more degeneration, which is going to cause bigger osteophytes and it becomes a vicious circle. How do you get this joint nourished? How do you get less pressure? The most important thing we are going to learn today is that we need to get people to move. Hint, hint, there's going to be a question at some point. And I'm going to say, what is the most important thing you could do for your, any patient that has arthritis? You're going to get them to move. You're going to get them to move on the table, and you're going to teach them how to move off of the table. Okay, so let's look at a normal hand. I can't draw hands, but.
3: I so, think
0: there's two on the. Screen I know, right but. Here. but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this would be, let's say, a normal hand. Okay? So, what is. You had...
4: Whoa. Frog hands. Frog <laughs> And then...
0: Okay, so it's a little exaggerated, but normal hand, not so normal hand. So right here, in the dip, you have an enlargement. Everybody agree? Right here, in the dip, you have an enlargement. Right here, in the pip, you have an enlargement. If you look at someone's hand and you see that the paper of the dip becomes enlarged, it's bulbous like, you're going to think osteoarthritis. What we're going to call the enlargement at the dip, okay, we're going to call it Heberden's nodes. Hint, hint, you need to know this. Because if I ask you, would you find Heberden's nodes in osteoarthritis, your answer is going to be yes. But I might ask you if you might find Heberden's nodes in rheumatoid arthritis, and at that time you would say no, because we're going to learn that it doesn't affect the dips. With a proximal interphalangeal joint, if they become enlarged because of osteoarthritis, we're going to call this Bouchard's nodes. So the way I remember it is B comes before H in the alphabet. Proximal comes before distal in your hand. Whatever works for you. So if you have Boucher's nodes and/or Heberden's nodes, one of the first things you're putting on your clinical impression list is oh, wait, if they're older, right? If they're 20 or 30, is this probably going to be the first thing you're going to put on your clinical impression list? Probably not, unless there's been some major major trauma or they have some other condition that would lead for them to have degeneration. Yeah. Can we visually tell, like, to looking at it, the, yes. the pit or the depth? Yes. Yes. You know, you can literally visually, oh yeah, like up there. Well, you can literally see it. Um, do you guys go into any long term care facilities? Yeah. Yeah. Look at their hands. Yeah.
1: a photo, yeah. uh, it, it looks very
0: is it Because it's further that you notice the pit. Pardon? The distal interphalangeal joint, yeah, it's the furthest one. And the proximal interphalangeal joint, it's the closer one. It's at a joint, right? It's degenerative joint disease, so it's happening at the joint. Okay. All right. So we definitely need to know about Bouchard's nodes, and we need to know about Heberden's nodes, and we need to know that it happens in OA. Okay. So what about if someone comes to you and says, "My neck is clicking or crunching, or my shoulders crunching, or my knee crunches." What do we call that?
3: Crepitus.
0: We call it crepitus. So sometimes it could be a ligament snapping. Sometimes it could be a tendon snapping, if it's a snapping sound that you're hearing. But what if it's truly like a... (coughs) (coughs) So one of the things you might want to put at the top of your differential list is going to be OA. Now again, you have to look at who it is. If it's a young, healthy individual, it might not be at the top. But if now you're looking at an individual who's had two or three accidents, who maybe is in their mid 40s or 50s, it might now be at the top of my clinical impression list, okay? So that's really important. So look at the manifestations. So here, if. So you guys all have grandparents or parents who are older. When they get up in the morning, what do they say? Ugh. Why? Why do they go, ugh? Because joint. my
3: joints. Because
0: my joints. So they're going to have a hard time after prolonged inactivity, so sleeping, for example, or after sitting watching Jeopardy or Family Feud or whatever it is that they watch, then they get up and start moving, they're going to have a really tough time. Everything's going to be really stiff and sore. Now, this usually within 10, 15 minutes of walking around, they're good. So you... Yes, that is very common because of the pressure differences, it is very common. But with OA, it is less than half an hour of discomfort or pain after prolonged inactivity. That is also very important because most of the other conditions that we're gonna talk about are gonna be more than 30 minutes or closer to an hour. Like polymyalgia rheumatica, if you guys remember, it was worse for a few hours in the morning, right? So that's one of the ways you can start differentiating, putting what's at the top of your clinical impression list versus two versus three versus four. Okay. So we talked about, we talked about joint deformity, we got that. ache. we talked about, and it's better after rest, that's great. Doesn't usually wake people up at night, okay? So no red flags for cancer, which is great. Joint effusion, we kind of talked about that. Um, Exacerbations and flare-ups. Exacerbations and flare-ups are really common with autoimmune diseases, which we're gonna be covering today. Um, In this case, when we talk about acute flare-ups, if they've overused the joint, it might become inflamed, okay? So it's not that they're just moving around a little bit, but if they decide to go for a three hour walk and they're not used to that, then they may have inflammation and it eventually go away once they rest. And then they go and move again and it gets a little better after 10, 15 minutes. But if they do excessive activity, you can get that exacerbation, that flare up, okay? That significant pain that can last a fair bit of time. So we need to know our osteophyte formation. That is on x-rays pretty much the clincher. If you see that on an x-ray, that's your number one clinical impression. So, resources are very different when it comes to this being bilateral or unilateral. So, this is a thing. Oftentimes in the hands, it is bilateral, but not always. So, for example, in the knee, you'll see that usually someone will talk about a knee having to have a full knee replacement. Usually the reason there's a full knee replacement required is because the articular cartilage is destroyed. So what's the number one cause for full knee replacement? Osteoarthritis. What's the number one cause for a hip replacement? Osteoarthritis. So it can oftentimes be bilateral but it can be years after. So if I were to say that my knees degenerating and I'm now kind of bone on bone and I get a full knee replacement. During that 3-6 months a year process when I'm rehabbing, how much pressure am I putting on my good knee? So it's not very it's not uncommon that within a few years that now you've got significant OA being developed in the good joints. So when we talk about it being unilateral or bilateral, oftentimes it's because of compensation. But in the hands and the feet, the small joints, in the hands and feet, it usually is bilateral. So that one is not exactly a clincher. So osteophytes in the spine, we're gonna call these, so right here, these are gonna be your osteophytes. Is that normal? So this is what the, the end, the anterior aspect of your vertebral body should look like. And then now you've got this. Normal? If it looks tooth-like, it's probably a osteophyte. And if it's an osteophyte, what do you call this? Osteoarthritis. Okay. Or degenerative joint disease. Either one is totally fine. Now, what's happening here? Is that do you think that's a normal disc? So when my joints in the spine start to degenerate and I start to see the end plates having more pressure on them and developing osteophytes, it's probably because my discs have narrowed and lost fluid. So my nucleus pulposus is supposed to be nice and jelly-like. What happens when I'm older and I have less water content? Everything hardens. If everything hardens and now it also narrows because that disc is degenerating, will I cause more pressure on the epiphysis? Yep. Yes, so you'll end up with osteoarthritis. In the spine, we would actually call this degenerative disc disease. Degenerative disc disease can lead to degenerative joint disease. Does that make sense? Because the disc is basically like your synovial fluid. It's basically creating that space between the two epiphyses. If it starts to go, now the epiphyses get really close together. All right. The big one to diagnose this is? X-rays. Wonderful. History and physical exam is really important. So what what does the joint look like? Um, How long has it been going on? Because if this has been going on for a few weeks to a few months, is it probably away? I mean, OA is a chronic issue that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So usually they need this to be going on for quite some time if they haven't taken x-ray yet. Who typically gets affected with osteoarthritis? Older individuals, um, people who've had really harsh kind of activities on their joints for a prolonged period of time or a lot of trauma or who have a secondary issue that's put a lot of stress on their joints. So, physical activity. What are you going to recommend for these people to do? What is your home care going to be for these people? Movement. Right. so So tell me what that looks like. What kind of movement? What are you going? Because t- I would agree with you 100%. But we have to be a little bit more specific to our patients. Okay, so someone said walking at the mall. So if this is going on at the SI joint, lumbar, spine, hip, knee, which is oftentimes weight bearing, and you're creating a jamming pressure from walking. I don't I don't disagree that walking is great, but if they've already got progressive OA, that's just gonna put more pressure on the joints. Wonderful, water aerobics, swimming, somebody said. On the your back yep
3: yep perfect wonderful
0: people will do the bike on their back right yeah. you do the, mo- yeah. the motorcycle you do the bicycle on your back that's wonderful so non weight bearing activities that promote movement are phenomenal so aerob- water aerobics are great swimming's great now what if someone doesn 't swim the bike is a good option it's you do have to be a little bit careful because when you're putting the spine in forward flexion that may bother the lumbar spine if it's got a lot of away. A, you sit you up. can sit upright, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You
1: can maybe self mobilization, like on like
0: at home, Yes. Just be careful because at the beginning um, when this is starting to generate the, there's a little bit of joint capsule and ligament laxity. So you just wanna, if you're gonna teach them, you really need to teach them about a grade one or two because they may not know when to stop, right? Because there is a little bit of laxity, especially when you're at that early to moderate stage of OA. So you do need to be a bit careful. What are you guys gonna do technique-wise? Give me the four best techniques you would do for this patient. Joint play gently probably grade one or two to start and if they can take more maybe two or three what's that stretch them great passive passive stretch yeah passive movement passive range motion passive stretching what about traction there's so much pressure in this joint traction and you can teach them how to do self-traction that's wonderful so that's really really important Okay, is there anything else you might want to do or educate these, pe- these patients on? So they're having pain every morning. They're having pain every time they get up from sitting for a while. They're having pain if they've been walking for too long. They have pain if they've been sitting for too long and then try to move around.
1: We're okay.
0: just so explaining like, like, to them, uh,
3: when it's warmed up, it's going to feel better, so like a hot shower, moving around, like the more they move, the better it's going to feel and making sure that they're educated on the context, right. so
0: Avoid prolonged static positions. Obviously, don't wake up in the middle of the night. Don't set your alarm every 10 or 15 minutes to move, <laughs> but when you're awake, that's kind of the guideline. That's Every 15 to, to 30 minutes, you need to change your position, even if it just means active range of motion. Move. And if someone's told them wear and tear, that out of their head. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. okay. If you're not going to wear it out, you don't need to it. You have to use it. Okay. You so yeah, uh, so acupuncture is really <laughs> helpful. <laughs> NSAIDs is not something we're going to recommend, <laughs> obviously. Sorry. Glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate. So there's a lot <laughs> of discussion around these supplements. There's some research that says they work and there's some research that says they don't do anything and it's placebo. So I usually will recommend these to my patients. I'll say, you know what, go try it, but do it religiously for three months. And if you notice no difference after three months, stop, because you're wasting your money. But you may notice a difference after three months. And if you are, to spend $15 a month to feel better, do it, okay. So that's that's one that's mm, not a lot of research behind. Okay, so these are new techniques. They've actually started. These are really expensive, by the way. I think this one is fifteen hundred dollars per injection, I believe, or fifteen thousand per injection. It's really expensive, anyways. They actually go into the joint and inject synovium, synovial fluid, and so the idea is that if you in, if you inject synovial fluid you're now going to help bathe that joint, right? You're putting in new, good nourishment into the joint. Now, it does hurt, yes, but um, it gives less pain. And it usually lasts, depending on the patient, they say anywhere between six months to nine months. So they will usually, if you have insurance, because OHIP won't pay for this and it's really expensive, most people don't pay out of pocket. Um, Usually people will do this if they've got benefits and... It usually will prolong your surgery, maybe six months, a year, year and a half, two years. But eventually... Can you it once? Nope, you can do it multiple times. So you can but, just
3: keep
0: doing it, yeah. Oh, it pays for the total knee replacement. And you're gonna have to get it done eventually. And then there's injection of hyaluronic acid. This is also really expensive. I can't remember how expensive each injection is, but again, it's not covered by OHIP. Um, And they are just putting in the good cells, like the good enzymes into the joint. Again, doing very similar things. They're trying to nourish and bathe the joint. So those are newer techniques. If anybody does have really great benefits, I always suggest for them to go back to their GP and talk to them about these things and talk to the benefit plan and see if they're approved because that may just buy them a couple of years before they have to get the surgery. And again, if they're in their 40s, do you really want them to get a full knee replacement or full hip replacement when you know it's only gonna last 10, 15 years? No. So yeah, it is something worth looking at. Okay, we're gonna watch this video, but they do use the word wear and tear. Don't. Not accurate. Okay.
4: Where'd it go? Oh, That's was like me also. Is
2: degradation better?
5: Is the addition of three knee exam tests can add to this information to determine who suffers from osteoarthritis. With this, we can now diagnose osteoarthritis years earlier than usual. My next patient has apparently been suffering from knee pain, and based on the result of a few questions and three quick knee exam tests, we can determine the condition of the joint. Hello, Leslie. and Dr. Soverex. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Same to you, Doctor. Have a seat? All right, I understand
2: you're having some trouble with your knee. What seems to be the problem? Well, I have no idea. It's just that I have this aching in my knee and I'll go away. Okay, can you show me where it hurts
5: exactly?
2: Right down the center here over the knee cabinet, and uh, down the side. Okay, and how long have you had this pain? Well, it's not really a pain, more like, like a, it's discomfort. I was not there all the time. It started about two years ago. pretty bad. When, uh, when it was hurting all the time for about two months. And now it's eased up a bit, but it keeps on bothering me every once in a while.
5: Okay. And can you tell me, have you noticed anything that makes the pain worse or <laughs> makes it better?
2: Climbing stairs makes it worse. So instead of walking a long distance, bang on. When it hurts, I normally mean, just take a rest and, and I sit down for a bit. But heat when it's really bad seems to make it feel better.
5: All right. And uh, how long are your knees stick for in the morning? Uh,
2: Just a a few minutes, sometimes half an hour, and it feels like forever. (laughs) All right.
5: I'll get you to throw on your shorts and I'll be back in a few minutes. All right. Uh, Can I get you to lie down?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah.
5: So first I'm going to see if there's any swelling in your knee. There are two tests that we do to detect swelling. Um, and they because they detect different amounts of fluid, we use them in conjunction with one another. So the first test is called the bulge sign. And with this test, we basically just move fluid around the joint. So first, I'm going to displace the fluid from the medial side of the knee, and then push it back in from the lateral side. And watch for a bulge to appear medially, which indicates a joint diffusion. And this test can detect a really small amount of fluid smallest three milliliters and you do have a
0: positive bulge sign. Oh! You guys learned that right? This no. no. Oh no, on oh, this semester you're doing it, no this semester you're doing it, in
2: the knee, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's wild. Ew. Now uh, the second test
5: is the patella tap. This test detects a larger amount of joints falling. With this test I push the fluid from the suprapatellar pouch into the knee and then I gently push down on the patella to feel for a patella tap, which is the tapping sensation that occurs when the patella hits the femur underneath. Your patellar tap is negative, but you do have a bit of swelling in your knee based on a positive bulge sign. So next, the next test I'm gonna do is look for a flexion contracture or how well your knee straightens out. So let me just scoot down here. Uh, with this, I'm just gonna straighten out your knee and I'm looking whether it straightens out completely. Even a small degree of uh, flexion contracture is abnormal, but your leg straightens up normally. Okay, next I'm going to check your gait. Can I get you to stand up? Uh, Okay. Come over here. So what I want you to do is turn around, walk away from me a few steps, then turn back and do it twice. In the assessment of gait, we look for any limp or abnormality of the affected knee in either stance or swing
0: phase of
5: the gait. So do you guys see a
0: valgus deformity? Yeah. It is really quite common for the medial aspect of the knee to be degenerated first. So when it comes to the knee, they try and take the pressure off of that. So ending up with a valgus deformity is actually quite common.
5: All right, Yes. Yeah. those are all the tests. Have a seat.
2: Thank you.
3: He loves it. So you're
5: going to give us up this. So based on your description of activity-induced pain um, that you had over the past year, together with those three tests, I can tell you do have some osteoarthritis in your right knee. Now, the thing about osteoarthritis is that even though it's a condition that's developed over time, it's not necessarily based on the fact that you're just getting older. There's other factors that play a role in this, uh, such as weight, physical activity, uh, muscle strength, things like that. But the good news is it's a manageable condition.
2: How is it manageable? Well, so there's a <laughs> things you can
5: do. First, a good exercise program to keep uh, strong knee and hip muscles, as well as for aerobic fitness, um, can help reduce knee pain substantially. And uh, you can do exercises in a swimming pool, for example, and some people consult with a physiotherapist who can teach specific exercises. The second thing is to have uh, to maintain a healthy body weight. That's really key. Um, people who are overweight, um, even lo- losing 10 pounds can sometimes help reduce knee pain quite substantially. Last thing I want you to do is find out all you can about osteoarthritis and how it's managed.
2: There are some good sources of information um, on the Arthritis Research Centre. They really should
3: have practiced that a
0: lot more. Um, Okay. Degenerative disc disease. So we've already talked about this. Essentially there is a narrowing of the disc, the intervertebral disc. So the intervertebral disc is also made of collagen, connective tissue. Mm -hmm. So again, Premenopausal, women tend to be a little bit protected because they have more estrogen and estrogen basically helps keep all the collagen healthy. Whereas men usually get affected before, so their 30s, 40s, 50s, and women more commonly after menopause, so in their 50s and 60s more commonly. Now, we lose water. Loss of water content. That is really, really important. That normally occurs the older we get, okay? So with the narrowing of the disc, it occurs because there's less fluid. So now you've got a little bit more of fibrotic tissue going on the disc, which also means it's less flexible. If it's less flexible, now the epiphysis of the vertebral bodies are gonna take more of the pressure. When they take more pressure and there's less space between them, there's now going to be additional load and now they want to create what do we call those osteophytes. So the degeneration of the disc, degenerative disc disease, will lead to degeneration of this whole entire joint, which will lead to degenerative joint disease. Okay. So when we say DDD, it's only in the spine because you only have intervertebral discs in the spine. All right. So very similar to degenerative joint disease, but it only occurs in the spine. So. It can be asymptomatic, meaning you may not have any pain. So if people go in and get x-rays of the low back for some reason, let's just say, I don't know, they were in a car accident and their low back is hurting. So they go in and they get x-rays and all of a sudden the doctor says, oh, you have degenerative disc disease. Well, is it caused from the accident? No. You can't say 100% no, but chances are, this is a degenerative disease. Now, if they have a lawyer, the lawyer's gonna try and say that that trauma started that process. But typically, this degeneration is occurring as we get older. So with a single trauma, it may start the process, but it's typically not gonna cause DDD if the trauma just occurred a couple of weeks ago, right? So you may have no pain and have degenerative disc disease. You may have no pain and have degenerative joint disease because it may be mild and it may not be bothering you yet, but If it starts to bother you, what are you going to complain of? Like a dull, achy pain. It's not typically sharp. There's no inflammation truly. It's just that there's more pressure and the discs are narrowed. So achy, dull pain. And it's going to be intermittent. Usually with activity, it gets worse. Or prolonged inactivity, it also gets worse. So they're usually gonna have a hard time in the mornings. Again, same thing as degenerative disc disease. So these really do go hand in hand. Okay, Um, let's talk a little bit about intervertebral disc stenosis. Neuroparaminal stenosis and central stenosis. So if this was my spine, and I'm supposed to have a nice healthy disc between here. Wow. OK, so let's just say now that this disc is half the distance. There's going to be some instability in that joint. So the joint is going to, the epiphyses are going to create little osteophytes to try and stabilize that joint. So where was I going with this? Oh, yeah, the holes. So we have holes. Well, We'll just put the holes here. Intervertebral foramen. What goes through intervertebral foramen? Nerve roots. roots. So if I'm supposed to have this healthy space between two vertebrae, and now all of a sudden I have a narrow disc, could I possibly, so this disc, this bone could come down here, could that start to compress the intervertebral foramen? So, is it possible that degenerative disc disease can lead to a radiculopathy? Definitely. Yes. So, degenerative disc disease will typically lead to degenerative joint disease or osteoarthritis, which if it gets bad enough, if it gets moderate to severe, can now start to affect the intervertebral foramina so you can get intervertebral stenosis, which would lead to radiculopathy. So, if you have someone that has numbness and tingling going down the legs or weakness going down the legs, don't rule this out, especially if there's been significant trauma in the back or if they are older, right? Get the x-ray, because it'll usually show you if that's what's going on. What are you doing for these people? Are you doing the exact same thing for genitive disc disease that you would do for genitive joint disease? Yes. I'm yes. going with
2: no, I'm saying
0: it. No, move! Yes. You need to move! Yeah. If, if you don't move, what happens to this disc?
3: Oh, yeah, well, You just keep legs. getting more
0: water out of it, and it's just going to keep getting smooshed. And if it keeps getting smooshed, you're just going to create more and more and more osteophytes, which is just going to make this all worse. You get this to move, you rebalance, hopefully, the structures, and you create less stress with the muscles that cross the joint. You hopefully take some pressure off of here, and hopefully the osteophytes won't continue to grow. Traction would be wonderful! And the distraction test
6: would be positive because traction would be
0: wonderful. It would be that wonderful! Yeah. You get them to Move! Now again, weight-bearing or non-weight-bearing? <laughs> Ideally, non-weight-bearing. Or not a lot of weight-bearing. The less weight-bearing, the better, because all you're doing is you're going to be creating more trauma here, right? But you get them too? Okay, hey. so don't forget that. It's really important. Alright, so yeah, I mean weight loss, they said it in the video, it's going to be really important as well because the less pressure you have on the joint, the less likely it is to generate, right? You take a little bit of weight off, that is obviously very helpful. But we are going to move these people and we're going to teach them how to move. And that's what we're going to do. So, question. What do you do? What is what is the top three best techniques for someone with degenerative disc disease? What do you do as a massage therapist? Wonderful traction. What else? Okay, you can do some passive range of motion. How do you do passive range of motion in the spine? It's essentially joint play. So you're doing joint play for sure, and you're gonna do your mobilizations. Anything else? How are the muscles gonna feel? The erectors are going to be super tight. And if you can release some of those, would it maybe take away some of the pressure from here and yep. limit that vicious circle? Yep. But if you just did that, like you said, the joint could still similar to the other way. You're talking about yes. If you just work the joint never work the muscle, yeah, same thing. You're still going to create that vicious cycle. All right.
2: It has the wear and tear of intervertebral discs that act as cushions for the spine. (laughs) This wear and tear may result from normal aging, or may be due to long-standing trauma. DDD typically begins with tears in the outer ring of the disc, or annulus, and can lead to a decrease in the water content of the soft gel center of the disc, or nucleus pulposus. This degeneration can lead to disc bulging, development of bone spurs or osteophytes, and loss of disc space height and or alignment. This can lead to nerve impingement and result in pain caused by pinched nerves. With advanced DDD, the loss of disc height can lead to segmental instability, resulting in degenerative spondylolisthesis, or asymmetric disc height loss, resulting in degenerative scoliosis. The advanced degenerative changes affecting the discs, (coughs) facet joints, and surrounding soft tissues can result in foraminal or canal narrowing, also known as degenerative stenosis. Symptoms of DDD may include pain at the site of the injury, pain, numbness, or tingling in the legs, strong pain that tends to come and go, pain that worsens when bending, twisting, and or sitting, pain is relieved when lying down, If you feel that you are experiencing any of these symptoms, you should see a physician for an accurate diagnosis. If Didi...
0: How, at the end of the day, do you think this gets diagnosed? What's the, what's kind of your ideal way of diagnosing degenerative disc disease? So x-rays will show bones. Do they really show you discs? So they won't show you the discs, but what you will see is you'll see the osteophytes on the epiphyses of the Vertebral bodies. So you will assume that if there's osteophytes, then it's probably because the disc is narrow, but do you really see discs on x rays? So ideally, a CT scan on MRI is really the best way to look at it. And if you did a CT or MRI, you'd actually be able to see the IVFs as well. So you'd be able to see if they were compressed.
3: Nice.
0: So what about these words? Spondylosis. What does that mean? Osis always means. Condi- that's itis. Oh, yeah. Osis means condition of, and spond. So condition of the spine is really how it translates, which basically is degenerative disc disease. Okay. Disc protrusion. What's a protrusion? So if this is my this is my nucleus pulposis and this is my annulus fibrosis, if my nucleus pulposus goes through some of the annulus fibrosis, what is that called? Protrusion. So that is a protrusion. If the annulus, if the nucleus pulposus cuts through all of the annulus fibrosis, what's that called? Protrusion. That's the herniation. What's the spondylolisthesis? One. So if you have your vertebral bodies like this, you'll have another one that will be either anterior or posterior slippage. So that can happen because of because of degenerative disc disease or degenerative joint disease because you've got instability in the joint. So now, don't what? Um, It's really common in gymnasts actually, just because the excessive flexibility and they usually have pedicle like mini fractures in the pedicles. Um, So so, I think bodybuilders get it too because when you get to like
3: a certain point of like weight bearing, like you're. For For degenerative disc disease.
0: Yeah, I can't say that I've seen any research to say it's really common in powerlifters. Um, but, well, it is, this, where do you think most commonly you have spinal lysthesis? Okay, so, in, where do you think is mo- most common to have DDD in the spine? Lumbar spine. So, because that's the most common area to degenerate, because it takes the most amount of load, it's usually the the area that you're going to end up with any of these conditions. Right? Well, C5C6 in the C spine, if you were to have any condition of the C spine, it would usually be at C5C6. Oh, no, in the spine, period. So, it's usually going to be in the lumbar spine. Okay, so we're happy with these. So you can have an anterior spinal lysis this or a posterior spinal lysis. Usually it's an anterior one, which means the vertebral body is shifting anteriorly. And that would be a complication of degenerative disc disease. Sorry, can you
1: these the disc protrusion and
0: the Yep. So the protrusion is the nucleus pulposus goes through some of the annulus fibrosis, but not all of it. And then the disc herniation is the nucleus pulposus actually herniates or actually tears through all of the annulus fibrosis. Yeah, so it's basically a full herniation, people will say. Okay, so we're happy with those terms. So you're gonna start to notice that your treatments are gonna be very similar. Are you starting to notice that? You basically have your chronic techniques and you basically have your acute techniques. Is this an acute injury? with acute inflammation, or are these chronic degenerative conditions? And you would do these things. So you will start to notice that you're doing the same things all the time because OA and DDD, you're gonna be treating on a weekly basis easily, if not more often than that, and you're basically doing the same thing, so yes. Okay. Rheumatoid arthritis, uh-uh. remind me with septic arthritis, what did we have going on in the joint?
1: Yeah,
0: No. No. <laughs> um, septic arthritis, yes, there was an infection. It was most commonly a bacterial infection, so staph is the most common bacteria. But what was happening in the joint? What was the pathogenesis of septic arthritis? What do you think? So we know there's a bacterial infection inside the joint. So it's in the synovium. Is that normal? So, what does the body want to do? Kill it. How does it kill it? you're going to create inflammation so your synovial membrane is going to become much thicker and it's going to spew out more fluid and it's going to spew out more things like monocytes and phagocytes and xenophils and basophils and B cells and all that kind of stuff. So now in your joint you have all these things that want to eat. So what happens? They start eating and they're gonna start eating the synovial membrane and then eventually, what's right after the synovial membrane? The articular cartilage, so then like and then what happens right after the articular cartilage? And this bone, it's the epiphysis. right? Okay, so, which we said one of the complications (laughs) of septic arthritis is that that joint could end up being destroyed, which would require fusion, right? Okay, so, now, what was the term we used when we said that synovial membrane became really inflamed, and it was spewing out all this extra fluid and all these other enzymes. what was that term we used for that synovial fluid becoming really thick? Panis <laughs> If you understand panis, that's what's happening with rheumatoid arthritis. So that's all you need to know. All right. So who gets this? So rheumatoid arthritis we're also going to call RA because that's usually the term we give it is rheumatoid arthritis we call RA. So typically it is more common, I think it's three times more common in females than it is in males. Um, it doesn't mean it can affect males, my dad has RA so it can affect males but it is much more common in females. Typically it's around that like 30, 40, 50 year old is usually when it gets diagnosed. Now, I think my dad was 24 when he got diagnosed, so it's a little bit young, but typically it's within that 30 to 60 range and it's more common in females. Now, this is an autoimmune disease. So, I put in the notes, because you guys told me you hadn't learned it. I put in the four types of hypersensitivities. So, this is a type three hypersensitivity. This is your normal, like, you know, I have a peanut allergy, I have latex allergy is your number one. Okay. So type three. What? Last night I added it. Yeah, the night before I usually like add things or I I corrected some typos.
5: Okay.
0: Yeah. Last night. Oh, yeah, it's further down. There Oh yes, it's further down. But I I did post that because you guys had said you hadn't learned those. There's actually five official types, but there's four that are really recognized. So like I said, this is a type three hypersensitivity. So this is an autoimmune disease. What that basically means is for some reason, we don't really know why, your immune system sees the joint as a bad guy. So your synovium and your synovial fluid look like an antigen. And so what does it do? It fights it, it kills it. So it's gonna mount an inflammatory response against the synovium and the synovial membrane and it starts to destroy it. Well, that's essentially what's happening with septic arthritis. As it's destroying it, you've got all of these B cells and T cells and macrophages and basophils and all this stuff in the synovium. What does the synovium become? Thick and panis is created, which has all kinds of enzymes in it, which starts to degrade the synovial membrane, which eventually will degrade the articular cartilage, which eventually will degrade the epiphysis, and it destroys the joint. So this is a progressive, destructive disease. Whereas with systemic lupus erythematosus, which we talked about and I'll talk about a little bit again, it does not destroy joints. So when you look at an x ray, it is clear if it's RA or if it's SLE, for example. Because one destroys a joint and one doesn't. Yeah. A
2: little bit off topic. Okay. So I was just wondering, like, you know, when we want the
0: break. Right after this. How's that?
2: Okay. Cool.
0: Okay. So we definitely need to know who gets it. I'm telling you right now on the final, there is a whole section of associations and one of them is epidemiology. So who gets this, osteoporotic, osteoporosis, who gets it, caucasian, frail, older female. Rheumatoid arthritis, who gets it, females 30 to 60, okay. So there's a whole section, there's like at least five to eight, I can't remember exactly, of associations you have to make on who gets what. So definitely know your epidemiology. This also helps you rule in or out whether or not it would be RA or not, okay? But this is chronic, progressive, destructive disease. So and it's autoimmune. So can you fix this? No, but you can help these people and you can help them significantly. It, it's gonna continue to destroy the joint. They're eventually gonna need to have these joints totally replaced, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, and they're gonna be in significant pain but you can help get them a little bit more mobile and get them through the attacks or the exacerbations, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, so know your pathogenesis because that is your formation. And you should have an idea that the two types of conditions that have formation is gonna be septic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, so usually this likes, it likes to affect the small joints of the hands, feet, wrists, and ankles, okay? Except the dips. Dips? No dips! No dips! dips. So do you find Hebridins nodes in rheumatoid arthritis? No! Do you find Bouchard's (coughs) nodes in rheumatoid arthritis? Yes, Yes, because this does affect the proximal interphalangeal joints. So your proximal interphalangeal joints, when they're getting destroyed, will look very bulbous-like. Okay, so that's very, very common. When the joint is being destroyed, that means the articular cartilage is being destroyed and that means eventually that the ligaments are going to become loosey-goosey. So in order to stabilize the joint, the muscles that cross them are going to have to become contracted, right? They're going to end up with contractures, which the more contracture there is, the more pressure there is in the joint. The more pressure there is in the joint, the less you're nourishing it, the more inflammation, the more degradation, more contracture. More inflammation, more degradation, more conjecture. So what are you gonna get these people to do? Move! Every single condition here, you are going to get these people to move. They don't wanna move, it's painful. It's, when they're not having an acute attack, it's stiff, it's achy, it's sore. When they're having an acute attack, they're usually not getting out of bed for a couple of days. Like it is excruciatingly painful because your immune system is literally destroying your conductive tissue. So it is really, really painful. Okay, so fatigue, weight loss, and um, weakness. The weakness usually comes from the pain. They don't want to move. So because they don't want to move, you end up not using the muscles, which now means they end up becoming weak. The fatigue, this is a little bit of a systemic issue. This truly is an issue of joints, but you can start to have some spleen issues with this. You can start to have some cardiovascular issues. It's not super common in pulmonary issues, but it is something that can happen with long-standing RA. Most likely it is joint related. Okay, we need to talk about something though. When you are treating people with RA, you must ask them when the last time they had a cervical spine x-ray because this likes to degrade the transverse ligament. Right, which is a problem. Because if it degrades the transverse ligament, what can that dense or that odontoid process do? If you don't have that ligament holding it, it can start concussion, concussion, concussing the spinal cord or damaging the spinal cord. So if you damage the spinal cord at C1, C2, you are dead because the diaphragm's innervated C3, C4, C5. So if anything above C3, you're done. So this is the thing, when you're treating somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, the rheumatologist should be on board with this. They usually see the rheumatologist, depending on how long they've had it for, could be every six months to every two years usually. But the f- if the rheumatologist is not on board with this, the family doctor should be. They need to have C-spine x-rays minimum every five years because you ne- need to check for ligament stability, which means usually they'll take an AP view, so they'll go ah, 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 so you can see the dens in the x-ray, and they'll also do a view when they're forward flexed to see does that dens compress the spinal cord at all, and then they'll do an extension one and they'll take another x-ray. So they usually do a few, and then they do a lateral view. So they will do a few views to see if there's any instability. If there is instability and you decide to treat them and you decide to turn their head, it could be really bad. Now, it could be really bad when they check their blind spot when they're driving too. It could be really bad when they wash their hair when they're in the shower, right? So it's not just while you have them on the table, but it is something that I find most people, any of the patients that I do have with RA, I have to remind them. When was the last time you had an extra? Ah, I don't remember. Okay, so when are you going to see your GP? Because you need to ask about getting this done. Or they'll say, Yay, yeah, yeah, I was like a year ago. Okay, I still do my aspinals test just to make sure. Either. I mean, usually when I do my work anyways, it's easy to do, right, it feels like a joint play. Um, So I usually will do it with them, but this is something really, really, really important because, I mean, the chances of you killing them are going to be very slim, but I mean, this is one of the complications with the disease. So especially if it's prolonged RA that they've been dealing with, you need to check that. Okay, so let's talk about some other involvements. So I didn't put it on here, but you will see, does your mom have hands like this? Are they stuck like that? Okay, so my dad too. So his toes literally are like this, so he can't straighten them. Um, And his hands tend to be a little bit claw-like. So claw-like, what's happening is there's contractures in the muscles. So the muscles are getting really tight because they're trying to stabilize the joint. So it's not that the joint is destroyed and it's causing a flexion. It's that the joint's being destroyed, causing the muscle to tighten up to stabilize it, which is now causing that. So if you know someone has RA and it likes the small joints of the hands and feet, so the pips, the MCPs, the wrists, the ankles, one of the things you probably want to work on is lots of joint play, lots of stretches, lots of range of motion, teaching them how to do it, maybe every day going into warm water and stretching out their hands because you want to avoid this. Because, again, this is progressive. It's going to happen at some point. But if you can prolong it where they're still able to type or do everything that they need to do, get dressed, feed themselves, all that kind of stuff, that's huge. Okay, okay. so there's that that happens, the claw hand. Is, N- sorry, is that the only thing that happens? No, 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 we're coming up. We're coming up. Yeah, yeah, we're coming up to that. I was <laughs> so, just going to say when you see people with, like, their fingers. Yeah, yeah, back, no, we're coming so up to that. that. We're coming up to that. Yeah, I so the other thing that will happen is you're going to have swan neck deformity. So if you take your finger and bend just the dip, I can't physically yeah. do that. No, I know, we can't. But if this is one of the things, oh, you can. This is one of the things that happens with people with rheumatoid arthritis is that the MCPs are in extension, the pips are in an extension, and the dips go into flexion. So you will sometimes see in their hands that their hands just look where the dips are flexed. Okay, so that's another thing that can happen that is called swan neck deformity because it's like the swan, right? Long neck with a little head. The other thing that could happen is called boutonniere's deformity. So when you do up a button, if you do up a button, your finger's kind of like this. If you're doing up a button, does everybody agree? You're kind of like this. So if you look at what my index is doing, it is flexed at the pip, proximal phalangeal joint, and it is extended at the... So it's the opposite of a swan neck. And it's literally stuck in that position. So again, important that you prevent these deformities because if those fingers are deformed like that, how do they function? Where's the dexterity coming from? How do they open bottles? How do they brush their teeth? How do they floss their teeth? Right? How do they type? So your job is not, you can't fix this disease, but your job is that you can maintain their lifestyle and their ability to move as long as possible because you're going to prevent these deformities, okay? The other thing that oftentimes happens is if you take your fingers and you push them all to the ulnar side, that's another thing that happens. So ulnar deviation. So literally, their hands will just be like this, without, like, just you set them down and they'll be totally ulnar deviated. The last thing that is really common in people with rheumatoid arthritis is they'll have calcifications. So heart extension nodules is what we call them. So rheumatoid nodules or extensor nodules really likes the hands, forearms, wrists, or around the feet. And they're hard calcified nodules that are usually on the extensor surfaces. So, for example, my dad has them on the forearms. But they could be on the wrist or they could be in the back of the hand. And they literally, if you were to push on them, they're rock hard. It feels like bone. But it's not, they're calcium nodules. And they just get built up. It's part of the disease process.
3: Like
0: in the joint? No, it's on connective tissue. So it's basically between the muscle and skin. Yeah, so it, it's very superficial. Like you can totally palpate them, you can usually see them. So definitely have an idea of what things you're looking for with rheumatoid arthritis, because if you, if I were to ask a question, for example, and I said there was extensor nodules, there was boutonniere's deformity, and there was Bouchard's nodes, are you gonna put OA? No, you're gonna put RA. But if I were to say there's Heberden's nodes and it's found in a female that is 65 years old? That would be OA, right? So looking at classic presentations. How are we doing with this? So if this is an autoimmune disease, what do you think the primary treatment is? Antisupra- uh, immune suppressants. So we call them DMARDs, drug-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. So one of the number one um, drugs that is actually administered or prescribed for people with rheumatoid arthritis is called methotrexate. Yeah, so it's a low-dose cancer treatment basically um, and what it basically does is it kills or suppresses your immune system so that it doesn't mount an inflammatory response and try and kill your connective tissue. So the idea is that if you lower your immune system, it won't be attacking your joints, so you won't get this destruction by the age of 40, 50, 60, right? So that you can hopefully maintain a lifestyle and mobility as long as possible. What is the problem with immunosuppressants? And anybody you're around, the, when you're on these DMARGs, they'll always say, or immunosuppressants, they'll always say, minimize your contact with anybody who's sick. Especially kids, because kids tend to not be as worried about dirtiness and catching colds and runny noses and slobber all over the place. But they will really try and minimize that. So, because their immune system is lowered.
6: Is this the. Um you're pregnant
0: you go off remissions and you're fine so it is common it's not with everybody but it is Uh, common that people will have remissions with RA with really any autoimmune disease um, it is common to have a remission during pregnancy pregnancy. and the really big one and I actually had a patient who had 10 children because she had multiple sclerosis and every time she got pregnant she went into remission um, she just kept having kids because she felt so great when she was pregnant, and it would take about a year after delivery for it to start getting worse again, and then she'd have another attack, and then she'd lose some kind of sensation, and then she'd get pregnant again. <coughs> so yeah, it, it's actually really quite common with MS, but it is also common with these uh, autoimmune diseases. Sorry, what I was trying to ask. You Sorry, before I thought it was the immune. Before I forget. Is there anything other than rheumatoid arthritis that can cause the ulnar deviation? Or if you see someone with that deformity in their hand, this is what it is? Yeah, it can happen in OA. It's not not just classic to rheumatoid arthritis. You could possibly see it in psoriatic arthritis if it's affecting multiple fingers. But it's really common in RA. So, again... So, say they had ulnar deviation mm. and the DIPs affected, though, that's the way you can rule it. Oh, yeah, I would totally rule out RA. Okay. Yeah, 100%. There's some overlap, but not. Yes, yes. Okay, so we're good with RA. We kind of have an idea of what the symptomology is like, and we know what treatments they usually... They're going to be... Usually they start with them on prednisones. They're going to put them on some kind of corticosteroids, which is a problem because they hold a lot of water, which now puts more pressure on the joints, and they're already in a lot of pain, but it usually does help them with the, the actual pain, at the joint level because of the inflammation. But the DMARDS is definitely what they're gonna be on. So what are you guys gonna do? So your patient comes in, tells you they have rheumatoid arthritis, they're probably not coming to see you when they're having an exacerbation or attack because they're in so much pain that usually they're not getting out of bed. So now you're seeing them when they're in, considered to be in remission. What do you do? So if I'm like this, what's your goal? Is your goal so to you get my finger straight again? Because no. there's no way that's gonna happen. Right, and you're going to have to cause them so much pain that you may even cause another attack. Because if you stress the immune system, you could end up putting them into an attack. Right, so you don't want to be too aggressive, but you do want to get mobility. So agreed, you want to stretch them within their pain tolerance. Heat for sure, I would definitely agree with that. How how we handle like
3: acute tortopolis? like it's a contracture, like a muscle spasm. So you want to. We'd work on some so scale. it's not just in
0: spasm, though. It is literally
3: contracted, stabilizing so. the joint
0: because the joint is destroyed. So rather than this much joint space, there's now this much joint space. So now there's way more movement. So the muscles that cross it are just really tight to say, hold on for dear life, right? You could. Do you really want to relax all of those muscles, though? Like, do you want to get them from 0 to 100, relaxed? So they are doing a job to stabilize the joint, but at the same time they're also so tight that they're creating more pressure which is actually making things worse. So you want to release a little bit without releasing it all, right? So you do want to be careful with that. So you want
1: to strengthen the other muscles, that also stabilize? But you wouldn't
0: want to stretch them? So it would be a great idea to strengthen. I will say these individuals tend to become very... um, detrained very um, sedentary because they're in pain pretty much all the time so to get them moving actively is very difficult but if you can do that without it being too aggressive i would 100% agree with that it's just there's a psychological component that comes along with chronic pain right these people typically aren't gonna get up and do stuff. The motivation typically isn't there because you're not going to fix this. And they know that. Anything else? So, so what we is the most important thing? Mm-hmm. Stuff like diaphragmatic DDB would be control. wonderful. Oh, yeah. a 100%. Yeah. Keeping the stress levels down 100%. 100%. So your mom, how does she how does she manage?
2: She does the, uh, the cream okay but uh, she has like, tons of it yeah uh and then she goes to her uh like Voltaire any kind of cream no like uh she has like some sort of like new cream My
0: okay this could be. Uh,
2: well i mean like she's had it for like 30 years now so like she's um. pretty like yeah yeah bad, the like, ra you know. is
0: very yeah it's very progressive. she
2: goes to like her new but technique
0: wise what does she do is there anything she does to help with the pain
2: Sits in the recliner and uh, eats chips
4: and then, like, just has a beer.
0: And, and I have to say, <laughs> and, and, and I, I am I'm speaking from personal experience as well, it's very difficult to get these people moving because my dad's the exact same way. Yeah. I worked all day. I already moved. I'm in pain. Leave me alone.
2: My feet are swollen. My hands are swollen. Make I can't move.
0: Every time I move, it hurts. Yeah. So, just getting these people moving is a big thing task if you can get them doing exercises and strengthening it's wonderful but it's a it's really tough it's really very tough because the psychological
3: component of these oh, individuals is she goes for walks with my dad around the block oh good I'm like with the dog
0: good yeah. that is always good when you have a dog it forces you to get out that's yeah. good okay She's so right now? we're almost there we're almost there it's
2: been two hours
0: oh, yeah. <laughs> hey we're almost there so blood work How does this get diagnosed? So yes, you're going to take an x-ray of the joint. You're going to see the joints destroyed, Okay, 100%. But you can see see on history that that's the case. But blood work is really important. So you're going to see your C-reactive protein is going to be high, your ESRs are going to be high, which just basically says there's a lot of inflammation in the body. So those are nondescript kind of uh, tests. About 80% of people with rheumatoid arthritis will have the rheumatoid factor. So if there's actually a blood test, like we talked about systemic lupus erythematosus looks for ANA, remember anti-nuclear antibodies? That was the blood test we looked for. You need to remember this, hint, hint. The same blood function that you're looking for, an enzyme that is very highly found in blood in people who have rheumatoid arthritis is called the rheumatoid factor. So you would look for that in the blood test. So now if you've got destruction of joints, And you've got a positive RF, and you've got a high ESR and a C-reactive protein. No ifs, ands, or buts. Pretty much you have RA. So you're going to, pretty much usually people are referred to a rheumatologist and the rheumatologist will do this test. GPs can do this test, but they'll usually say if we're thinking it's a rheumatological condition, they'll usually send you off to a rheumatologist. But remember RF because this is also things you might see in the association in the final exam of what blood tests would dictate what condition. Like ANA would dictate SLE, RF would dictate RA. Now, if I had no joint destruction and I had a positive RF, does that mean I have rheumatoid arthritis? No! Only 80% of the people have rheumatoid arthritis and if it's the only thing you have, it doesn't necessarily mean you have RA. So on its own, it's not enough, but it's one of the things you look for. Some people have ANA and they don't ever develop systemic erythematosus. No idea. Yeah. It is. But that's one of the reasons why you don't just look at one test and say, that's it. You've got that. Because if you have no other symptoms, you, you can't make that call. So you might want to re-X-ray in three, six, nine months, maybe 12 months, maybe two years to see if the joints do start getting destroyed. Okay. All right. So these are your extension nodules that you will see. So this is on the back of the hand, but you can see those in the forearms. You can see those around the ankles. So you can see the ulnar deviation in the fingers. You can see the Bouchard's nose. They're a little bit larger. And you can saw that, see the claw neck or the claw, the claw toes that's happening in the lower limbs. All right, let's go take a break.
2: Yeah this what my mom's it's like but this is pretty like accurate like what it looks like yeah that's significant and she never she never had any surgeries so
0: when di- oh, on, was it diagnosed
2: must a long time ago i think it was when i was born honestly cuz that's what she said she's like Why like, something about like when, when she was pregnant with me that it was like either the first or she got it like, well, would have caused a lot of pain when she was pregnant. Right? Yes. Before, and she has scoliosis really on the top of all of it,
0: kind of thing. So, so how old was she when you were born? Uh,
2: 23 years ago. Yeah,
0: but probably. For them to go and do surgery at that point, it's, I mean...
3: The organs, I feel like, are like around the spine, kind of. like they Well,
0: play. I mean, anything, the gastrointestinal system, it's not a big deal. They can move around, yeah. right? Kidneys, they, there's a little bit of place. Yeah, it's the, it's the heart we really get concerned about and then the lungs.
2: Yeah. That's,
0: but everything else is kinda mobile in the peritoneum, right? Yeah. So I like mean, you, you shove it a little bit,
4: Yeah, I, I think that she's, I mean, she's gone this far with it, I feel like. And that's know.
0: usually what they'll say, is if you can avoid the surgery, because sometimes the recovery from surgery is worse. Yeah. And sometimes exactly. people don't even have less pain after surgery. Yeah. So then what was the point? Yeah. But if you're like young, um, they will typically want to do that to prevent yeah. further progress.
4: Prevent what my mom is at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's all right, though. She's a yeah. kind spirit.
0: Oh, I didn't say when to come back. Never.
3: Never. I when they will back. I don't
1: know. I Is
0: oh. oh, not
1: There's these little balls. So, I'm you, Hello, hello, let's go.
4: First.
0: I yeah, it yeah, so, Jameson's not here today?
3: No. I'm expecting I was I was
0: expecting his signature. And I was like Yeah, No, he was here this
3: morning. Why not here? I mean, it's totally his call.
0: I just why did I was gonna ask that. Why did he getting to get signature? Because he's getting
5: a certain amount I
3: don't know exactly, but he said he's getting a certain amount of tuition paid if he's like from the back or something, like his work. Or I don't know a
0: certain number of hours in class. Oh. So to, like, attendance yeah. is important. OK. yeah. Oh. actually like, I've seen a lot of scholars who support attendance, but I didn't know that
3: mm-hmm. they were a crack to die for yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So well, that's how so you make sure that you're actually worthy of it. Well, I guess so you apply <laughs> for the scholarship, and if you
0: say you have impeccable attendance, and then you have a reference from a faculty member saying you have impeccable attendance, they wouldn't say that if it was just their class that you're only there for, probably. Yeah. Right.
3: So update on yes. what I was talking to you yes. last week. So I saw him oh, on yeah. Friday. Right, yes. And I like um, we did our thing, like he was doing his
0: can You didn't go see your GP.
3: No. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I like at the end of the <laughs> session I asked if he could send me for imaging because I wanted to know exactly what was going on. And he said that he wouldn't like to because it's not getting worse, like the symptoms are not getting worse, there's no red flags, blah, 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 and if you go looking for something you're going to find something. And then I asked him like specifically to explain to me why he thinks, what he thinks, and he said after a reassessment he doesn't think there is spondylolisthesis, he just thinks posterior disc bulge. Um, because Swan, you, and I'm gonna like ask you this, does Swanee send mm. neurological symptoms? Oh. If, it, if, it,
0: if it did, it would be because it would be affecting the IVF or it would be causing a central a spinal stenosis, right? So if, cause you were saying it was 50%, which means that 50% of the vertebral bodies, which now means your spinal cord is having to do this. Mm-hmm. So is it possible with zero to 25%, not likely, 25 to 50 possible, over 50, It's very possible that there's neurological symptoms.
3: Okay, because the only reason why he believed that there was spawning was because of my history as being a gymnast. Which is it is the most common. Yeah, and he said something about pars defects. Yes, pars interarticularis. Yeah, and just like based on I have a really but we don't have any anterior pelvic tilt and like. He was concerned about that and like, because he was thinking that if it was spondy, that it would be a L5S1. But based on like the exercises he had me do, and um, extension is relieving, but flexion doesn't aggravate it. It's just like it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Cause, yeah, it doesn't cause pain or anything, but extension, extension, it's weird because it, like when I go into extension, during the extension, it hurts for a second, but then like when I come out of it, it feels better. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if that's just like the muscles in my back
0: or like. So, uh, the PARS <laughs> defects is very common with gymnastics because of the arching, mm-hmm. because of the extension, right? So, but because, I mean, spondylolisthesis yeah. is such a specific diagnosis that normally it's not until you have an x ray mm-hmm. to, 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 to say that.
3: Yeah, but. he was just giving me like his ideas, like okay. all his clinical impressions. Like, yeah, yeah. He was just communicating. Okay, got what it. Was got it. Through
0: his head. Okay. So are you having any symptoms down the leg?
3: Yeah, I have bilateral symptoms. Right, Um, that's right. It starts in the, like, it only comes on when I bend forward, whether I'm standing or sitting and I reach for my toes, it only comes on when that, or um, if I like do the pigeon stretch for like piriformis, which is why initially, we thought it was sciatic, right. um, but it's bilateral and it starts at like the toes on the bottom and then it goes, like if I hold the position for long enough, it travels up the bottom of my feet and then sometimes it goes to like the lateral calf, but it's mainly just the bottom of the feet. So. As so that's
0: why, so, and that's probably why he's thinking posterior disc herniation because it would be very uncommon for a posterior lateral, you'd have to have a posterior lateral bilateral. Do you know what I mean? So, and if you did have bilateral, I mean, that would ha- it would typically be a posterior disc herniation. So, I mean, well, he, I mean, so when you said imaging, did you say any specific imaging? Okay, so the only thing as Kairos that we can prescribe, I mean, if he has facilities, he can do his own Mm x-rays. Or if you've signed up with OHIP, We can send people to x-rays, but you have to pay out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have access to MRIs or CTs. So he may be thinking, why do I want to radiate you? Because I say this to my patients all the time. I don't want to send you for x-rays, because I don't want you to have more radiation. But the problem is, if I send you back to your GP, they always want to do x-rays first before they send you for a CT or an MRI. I Just skip it. But anyways. Um, so, that he could be thinking that, that he has a pretty clear clinical impression and why would he want to create more radiation. And I, I get that, I do agree with that. I, I always say, if it will help you to know, it will always help me to be 100% sure. I'm probably 95% sure as to what's going on.
1: but. Let's just say, like, so if you were my
0: patient, I'd say I'm I'm probably 95% sure I know what's going on, but no one's 100%. Mm -hmm. But once we get an MRI or a CT, we will be 100%. So -hmm. then I will know 100% that either what I'm doing is right or not. So I usually leave it up to the patients, unless I have no idea what's going on, and I'm like, you got to go get imaging because I don't know what's going on.
3: Yeah, he said that I could go to my GP and, like, ask for imaging or whatever, and I said, like, my GP sucks, because I had a great GP, and then she passed away, and so I had to get transferred to just the next GP that was taking on clients, and,
4: uh, like,
3: racist, but he's an Indian man, and he does not take care to like, ask intense questions or anything, like, I, I don't like that. <laughs> but there's no one else taking our yeah. the implant, so I kind of used it, but anyways, um, I got you. so I explained, so, that. I mean, I, I see,
0: and I would agree, I mean, if, if my clinical impression's working, if the treatment plan's working, then you don't need to get imaging at this time, because things are working, mm-hmm. so I would agree, I always just say, if you're open to it and you want to be 100% sure, go get imaging. Because
3: mm-hmm.
0: at the end of the day, it'll always help me. Because then I'll be 100% sure that yeah. what I'm doing is what I like I'm supposed to, to be doing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he's, like, for uh, treatment, he's had me do, like, he hasn't done any adjustments on me. He's had me do a lot of exercises. So he started with McKenzie exercises, and then he progressed me to, like, a lot of breathing and, like, like, diaphragmatic breathing. And then I don't know how to explain it, but, like, inhaling, and then on the exhale trying to maintain the, like, yeah. in my stomach, I yep. guess you would say. Yep. In the like dog yeah. position doing that and then um so after that's starting doing that, to get some core. Al- adding like a leg yeah. after. And I've been doing it so far and like I haven't noticed any changes or anything like that. Like it's not better
0: but it's not worse.
3: Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's only since Friday that you gave me those exercises. Okay. So, <laughs> not necessarily going to be a change that fast. Yeah. But.
0: Yeah. I did my thesis um, with, there was only, like, I only had 18 patients, but I, my thesis was core strengthening with disc, either protrusions or herniations. And it took six months of daily core work before we got, well, I think it was four or five pain levels down. So I think they started noticing a difference. Uh, I'd have to go back to what my thesis was. I want to say it was like two months before they started noticing a difference. So stick with the core exercises um, and, you know, slowly progress them because that will make a huge difference for discs. It's, It's probably the most important thing for discs.
3: Okay, so which muscles do I want to focus for core? Transverse
0: abdominis is the most important.
3: Uh, so, and I thought that, but I when I like think about it, inflating my stomach during the inhalation, <throat> how am I targeting a a transverse <throat>
0: abdominus? You're eccentrically contracting mm-hmm. it. Um, which is the hardest contraction.
3: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It's and okay. the and then, just um, that before. that's what I'm saying. So if you're not on what just kind of, like, confuses you me is if it's a posture, disc bulge. Yep. Why would you want to strengthen the, the, strength the core and, like, not necessarily work round work the and back, and but, like, when you're strengthening the core, like, I feel really
0: like you You're not trying to change like posture. You're trying to create stability in the joint. So the more stable the spine is, the less torsion you're going to have. The less likely you're going to have damage or tearing of the endos fibrosis. <clears throat> so you will minimize further either herniations or protrusions. That's all you're trying to do. So you're trying to create a little bit of stiffness in the spine so that you don't get a lot of the loosey goosey stuff, because that's going to create. And with rotation, like, we have to be really careful with when adjusting people when we believe there's a herniation or protrusion, because rotation is one of the ones that usually causes tearing.
3: The jelly goes.
0: <laughs> Especially posterior lateral, right? Because yeah. flexion and rotation—that's like the number one trauma that causes disc herniations for posterior lateral. Mm-hmm. A posterior is a little bit different, but yeah, the rotation is really hard. So, yeah, I usually won't mobe in rotation, but I usually won't adjust in rotation. Yeah. He yeah no. um, um,
3: well, like you just did the exercises with me, like making sure that I was doing everything.
0: I would say that's the number one thing, honestly, is the core strength thing, because you'll never fix a herniation, but you can
3: create stability, and you can create
0: stability so that you don't have pain.
3: Oh, I don't like know when this would have happened. Like I can't think of anything that I would have done that It may not have been happened. a one
0: time thing though. This may be a little bit of like degeneration going on, right? So with gymnastics you have a lot of mobility in the spine. Yeah.
3: I have Insane flexibility, mainly in the Lumbar spine, but it's mainly an extension, I don't know.
0: Like, maybe but even flexible. just the repetitive know. like landing could have done it, the repetitive twisting, oh, yeah. repetitive extension, like... Fair enough. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I never <laughs> thought of that. And,
0: and, and discriminations can be from a single trauma, yeah. but oftentimes. I did
3: everything. Right up until I was like...
0: I only It's probably that repetitive stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. I okay. do. Oh, okay. you.
0: Oh, the swan fingers, yep. the profundus, also be the one causing that? Well, that's what's happening in the, con- the contractor of flexor digitorum profundus, is what's causing it. Okay. So it was like, I was reading stuff, this muscle strength test, and I was ta- ta- talking about profundus, yep. if you go into extension, if it's really, really tight, then the fingers will extend, or if yep. you try to extend the fingers, then the we'll Will flex, flex. Yep. Yeah. okay, yep. so it was like, I feel like that's profundus. So but to that's sure. contracture of, which yeah. is different, right? yeah, okay. I get confused with contracture. Okay. A contracture is basically like a long-standing muscle spasm because of the joint being unstable so over time because the joints not stable the body makes that muscle get tighter and tighter and tighter to stabilize but it takes a long time to do that and it takes a long time for that process to occur so a contracture is not tightness it's usually secondary to a disease and it's like chronic
3: yeah
1: okay.
0: Okay. And then Oh yes, quick. Cer- is it just cervical? Sp- this one that has a little,
3: a um, little, t- the little, tap- the little
0: uh, Yes. Tap- um, the unsynaptic processes. Okay, because uh, when she was talking about like well, bodybuilders, like, well, like, well, like, isn't it just in C spine that? So that- but that's the processes body. are normal, whereas osteophytes are not normal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. But I feel like you wouldn't lose. Like, she was saying that, like, weightlifters will lose their little thing because they're carrying all that weight. But that's oh, more that's like what down she meant. Yeah. Oh, yes, it can happen. But it, not just with weightlifters. Anybody that has excessive yeah. motion of the, yeah, yeah. In the early, neck. And earlier, I just got confused. Yeah. I thought you were saying dips and pits. Pips. And I was like, so i have like, is she talking so, like, I get it now. Yeah. Distal interphalangeal. Yeah. but I... proximal interphalangeal. Yeah, that makes sense now. Dips. Like, uh, yeah. Tina showed me a picture. Or, I was like, oh, okay. I, was, I thought she said pits, and I'm like, I can't, yeah, fix, like, I can't figure out what, what do you mean? That's fucking a word? Dips, <laughs> dips <laughs> okay. and pits. Okay. All right. I was like, dips, trying to figure out, Like is she talking about like dips dips. the proximal or, or, the or distal? Like Which one's convex, concave? Like yeah. I get it now. Okay. Okay.
3: Yeah. Do, you have a boy or a girl? Do I have what? You have a boy or a girl. Oh, I had a
0: girl. Really? <laughs> yeah. Marie Jose. Sorry? Marie Jose. It's French, so we call her MJ. Okay. So we are now doing juvenile idiopathic arthritis. <clears throat> now, the old term of this is JRA, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. We no longer use this term, okay, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis is an old term, we don't use it anymore. The reason we don't use it is because there's three different types of this juvenile idiopathic arthritis and they're not all like RA, only one of them is. So it doesn't make sense to call this juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when there's only actually one of the types that's like rheumatoid arthritis, okay. So it's JIA is the term we use, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which means juvenile happens in kids. So this happens under 16 or less. If this person starts having the condition at the age of 18, it's not JIA. So the symptoms have to be present before the age of 16 for it to be considered juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Idiopathic means we don't know the cause. It's autoimmune and then arthritis, because it's affecting joints. I am recording, by the way. Oh, yay. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it's been working. Oh,
4: really, this whole time? This whole time. Okay. Okay.
0: I'm just gonna have it for you. So, make sure we use the right term. We're not using JRA anymore, okay, J-I-A. So we definitely need to know this is an autoimmune condition, which basically means it's the same as rheumatoid arthritis in the form of being autoimmune. So it's the immune system that's attacking the normal connected tissue of joints. Or of organs, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. <clears throat> so, this happens in kids under the age of 16. We have three different types. We need, hint, hint, we need to know these three different types. Okay? Possearticular, J I A, is four joints or less are affected. It typically likes the small j- joints of the hands and feet, ankle, wrists, knees, kind of area. How do you connect it? Pos- Possearticular. Possearticular. You have to know the definition. Four joints or less are affected. This mostly occurs in girls. Okay? So, if you were to do a blood test, not everybody with posse JA has high HLA-B27, but it is fairly common, okay? HLA-B27, we're gonna learn, is the blood marker for ankylosing spondylitis, which we're doing right after this. But if you're young and you're complaining of joints and you have less than four joints or less that are painful and you have a positive HLA-B27 blood test, pretty much sure you have posse JIA, okay? So it's not in the notes. HLA-B27 is very common in posse so you might want to add that in there. Alright, um, polyarticular is more than five joints. So that's how you can determine whether it's posterior or polyarticular. This also likes girls more. Now, it likes small joints of the hands and feet, ankle wrists, knees, hips, and TMJ. So a little bit wider of an area that it affects. It is oftentimes symmetric. So girls, symmetric, more than five joints. This is the type of JIA that is most like rheumatoid arthritis. Hint, hint. Because rheumatoid arthritis likes females. Rheumatoid arthritis destroys joints and it likes the small joints of the hands and feet, ankle, wrist, knees. Very common, okay? And rheumatoid arthritis is symmetric and so is polyarticular JIA. So we definitely need to recognize that. Okay, systemic. What does the word systemic mean to you guys? Whole system. So with systemic, also known as Stills disease, it's not just the joints that are affected. And in fact, you may not have any joints affected. You may have splenomegaly, which means enlarged spleen. You may have lymphadenopathy, which means inflamed lymph nodes. Fatigue, tired, malaise, weight loss, rashes. Okay, those are really common symptoms with someone that has Stills disease. Now, does that sound to you like maybe the beginning of chickenpox? Yeah? Yep. Does it maybe sound like someone's maybe getting the flu? So the thing with this is, if this is going on for a few months, it's not the flu. If it's going on for a few months and you're not getting the papules, that become the pustules and eventually dry, it's not chicken pox, okay? So we definitely need to know about these three. Now, Stills disease affects men or boys and girls equally, so there's really not any gender preference in that one. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, polyarticular JIA oftentimes will have a positive RF factor, okay? So as you can see, polyarticular JIA is a lot like rheumatoid arthritis. So HLA-B27 is posyarticular JIA and RF is polyarticular JIA. So we really need to know about these three types. So what do you think is one of the major issues with JIA, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. This is kids that be are being affected. So what do you think is a major issue? Uh, growth plates. Oh. Growth plates are really affected. Because again, this is an arthritis, it's affecting the joints. The, so the joints may not totally be destroyed, but they may start to be destroyed. And if they start to become destroyed, or they become affected, could that affect epiphyseal growth plates? which means it could diminish their stature. Now, one of the common things that they'll see is micrognathia, which basically means the the epiphyseal growth plates in the mandible are minimized, which now means the mandible does not grow the way it should. So you'll oftentimes, if you see people who are now adults who had GIA as children, you'll oftentimes see the mandible will be retruded because those growth plates were affected or their arms may be a little bit shorter, or their legs, their, their height may be a little bit affected. So that's really common with that. So the pain is worse in the morning. Now, when are growing pains typically worse? At night. So you should be able to rule in or out whether or not this is growing pains, because a lot of people say, oh, you're just having growing pains. Well, first of all, the pain's in the morning. Second of all, this is on and off for months to years. Growing pains are not on and off for months to years. You may have a growing pain, it could be six months or a year before you have the next one. So, this is much more consistent. Okay? <clears throat> so, um, and then shorter status, we already talked about. This. So, how does this get diagnosed? Yes, you can take an x-ray, possibly, and see some joint destruction. But what if there's no joint joint destruction? So it gets diagnosed typically by symptoms or by physical exams. So history, do you have at least one joint that is affected for more than six weeks. So it's not just that you fell and you bruised yourself. It's not that you strained something. It's not that you sprained something. This is going on for more than six weeks. And it's relatively painful. Okay, so that's really important. We gotta talk about blood work. C-reactive protein, we've already talked about that. What does that mean? If you have a high C-reactive protein, lots of inflammation, important to know. Your RF factor can be high in polyarticular juvenile idiopathic arthritis. You can have high HLAB 27 with polyarticular juvenile arthritis, so again, between the x-rays, the blood work, and the history, you'll usually come up with that diagnosis. And then the age, the epidemiology, right? Is it a child? Is it someone under the age of 16? So there's not a one diagnostic test to say, if you have this, if you have RF, you have GIA. If you have positive x-rays, you have GIA. You have to take it as a whole, which is also sometimes why things get misdiagnosed, because it's not like there's one classic test that you do this, it's positive, it means this. You usually need an array of things so that's really important. So they're going to be on the same medications typically as individuals that are that have rheumatoid arthritis because it's an autoimmune disease so they're going to be on immunosuppressants. They're probably going to be on some kind of corticosteroid like prednisone which we're going to watch a video and you're going to see this little boy looks very um, large but it's actually fluid retention from the prednisone which is again <laughs> another issue because you're putting more weight on the joints right so that is a little bit of a tougher thing. In really severe cases they've been trying to do stem cell transplants which basically means take your whole immune system (coughs) and give it a new one. See if you can actually put in new bone marrow and create new B cells and T cells and try and minimize the immune reaction or not have one anymore. So they don't typically do that very often, but if it's in really, really, really severe cases, they will. So we'll watch this video, because it'll give you an idea of what it looks like. Ethan
6: is a really bright little boy. He does very
2: well in school. Hello, buddy. Intuitive, smart, athletic. Very athletic, and uh, Ethan is an absolutely extraordinary <laughs> person to be able to cope and to deal with the kind of pain that he deals with.
6: Each morning, little Ethan Nelson tries desperately to forget the pain. He faces the day with the of a half dozen different medications. Ethan needs a straw with his drink because the cup of hot chocolate too painful for
0: him to live. That's usually Ja. One thing he said to me several months ago was, Mom, what's it like not to be in pain? Uh, Here's a little boy that's seven years old, and he doesn't remember a
2: time when he wasn't in pain. No child should ever have to go through an experience where you wake up every morning and have the kind of pain that he does. There was a time
6: when Ethan didn't know pain. Diagnosed at the age of four, the pictures show a boy who has changed in dramatic ways.
1: He hasn't really grown for almost three years. I want him to have a normal growth pattern. I want him to be a normal man someday.
0: And those are things I worry about as a mom.
6: But Ethan's courage continues to amaze those closest to him. His parents
2: want him to know that. I say it very, very sincerely, Ethan, you're the the bravest boy I know, and uh, he really is. He's he's a wonderful boy that's able to deal with pain more than anybody that I know.
6: Ethan loves school, and he loves reading. But school isn't always fun. There are times when other second graders make fun. Of the way he looks.
0: I went in and did a presentation to his classroom and said, you know, you might notice Ethan's face is a little puffy right now, and, and you all know what joints are. I told them about arthritis and that Ethan has this disease, and that um, because of that, he has to take lots of different drugs, and some of the
6: drugs make him have a real puffy face. Fevers, headaches, Loss of appetite, intense joint pain, all characterize systemic onset juvenile arthritis or Stills disease, the type of arthritis that Ethan battles. His Which is the worst one? Dr. John Bonsack says it's the worst form of arthritis that he cares for. He calls it the devil's disease. The devil himself could have designed, couldn't have designed this disease any better to make your life miserable. Despite the severity of his disease, There are signs that Ethan is improving. On good days, he likes to show his classmates what a good athlete he is. Okay,
0: so the one thing we should know about this, um, usually, I don't want to say you grow out of it, but once you kind of hit that 17, 18, 19, 20 year old, um, you typically don't have the disease being aggressive anymore. So whatever damage has been created is kind of left at that time, and so you have the residual damage, but it doesn't get worse once you hit adulthood. So the idea of him being diagnosed when he's four now means that he's probably gonna have 12 years of destruction, whereas if you're diagnosed when you're 14, 15, 16, you don't have a lot of time for that joint destruction to occur, right? So that's kind of the issue with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, is if you're diagnosed young, you will have remnant disease issues. Okay, spondyloarthropathies. So we're gonna be doing ankylosing spondylitis, we're gonna do psoriatic arthritis, and we're gonna do um, reactive arthritis. So those are all spondyloarthropathies. That's kind of the term we give. So ankylosing spondylitis, for those of you that had me in assessments, we talked about this quite a bit. So AS, ankylosing spondylitis. What does that mean? Ankylosing means? Fusion. So, ankylosing means fusion, and spondylitis means spine and inflammation. So, what we talked about last semester was, if you can break down the name, ankylosing spondylitis, you would know exactly what's happening. You have inflammation occurring at the spine, and it becomes fused, period. So, this is another autoimmune disease. It likes to start in the lumbar spine. This is important. So it starts in the lumbar spine, which means the lumbar spine becomes inflamed, then it fuses. Then it could be months or years later, it will then affect the SI joints. So the SI joints become inflamed, and then they fuse. And then, could be months or years later, your thoracic spine becomes inflamed, and then it fuses. And then months or years later, your neck becomes inflamed and then fuses. So we need to know the progression. It starts in the lumbar spine, then goes to the SI joint, then T-spine, then C-spine. Okay, we need to know that. So when someone comes into you and complains of low back pain and you've got positive testing but your treatment plan is not doing a difference. You're not noticing any pain relief. This is what happened to me. I had someone come in, we did a treatment plan. She was getting better, but it was never progressing. It was always two or three days she felt better and then it came right back. And then I finally said to her, I'm not sure what's going on. Let's do a whole reassessment, did different techniques. Didn't make a difference. She had a couple of days of relief and then always came back. And so it ended up being about three or four months before I finally said to her, yeah, I gotta go get x-rays because I have no idea what's going on. So then she went and didn't want to get x-rays because anyway she couldn't get into her doctor but she did a whole bunch of core strengthening and all kinds of work with a physio and same thing. A couple of days of relief, never got any better. She finally did get x-rays and it turns out that she had ankylosing spondylitis which is strange because ankylosing spondylitis likes men and it likes men between the 20 to 40 year range. So rheumatoid arthritis likes females around that 30 to 60 range. That's your epidemiology. Whereas, ankylosing spondylitis likes men between the age of 20 to 40. So, this would present initially with low back pain. And then, which is 80% of the population. And then eventually they're going to say to you, oh, my low back pain went away. Because the lumbar spine fused. And then they might come back to you months or years later and they're going to say, oh my god, my low back's hurting again. But it's a little bit lower than last time. It's because the SI joints are inflamed. So keep this in mind, especially when you're treating men of that age. Keep this in mind as a differential. And if you're concerned about it, send them off for an x-ray because you'll be able to see this on x-ray. Okay, so. Yep, lumbar spine, then SI, then T-spine, thoracic spine, and then cervical spine. So what happens when you're in pain? What do you do? You stand upright and up nice. What do you do? You flex, right? I'm like, oh god, this hurts so much. Oh. So when they're in pain in the lumbar spine, what do they do? So when it fuses, how does it fuse? So then my SI hurts. And I do this, right? Because it hurts. Oh, god. So then I fuse in this position. And then my thoracic spine hurts. What do I do? Oh god. And then I fuse in this position. And then how do I walk? I have to put my head up. So how does how do I end up fusing in the cervical spine? So I literally have a patient who was diagnosed with AS probably about I'm gonna say 18 or 20 years ago. And literally this is this is how he comes to me. And you laugh, but I mean he has a hard time Sad. getting in and out no, of his I car. I dated him.
4: somebody with this, and he is very stiff.
0: Yeah. So, well, and if you think about it, it's fusion, it's ankylosing on the spine. So, you can't go in and do joint play once it's fused. It's not going to move, right? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this bamboo spine. So, when we look at the spine, like this, and then we have discs. And then we look at the spine, and then we have discs. When these fuse, not only do the, kind of, the ligaments fuse, the joint capsule fuse, but the intervertebral discs fuses. So when this all fuses, it all fuses, does it look like a bamboo stick? So that's one of the things you'll end up seeing on an x-ray. Or we also say bamboo spine because it's so stiff, you're not getting any mobility out of it. The other thing that will happen at the beginning of the fusion, you'll actually have the ligaments that will start to fuse. And so what you'll see is you'll see the ligaments like this that create almost these white lines along the spine. We call those trolley track sign. That is another clear indication that the spine's trying to fuse. You have calcification going down on the ligaments that basically looks like a railroad track. So if you see trolley track sign on an x-ray, that's another really big one. Um, Anything else we need to talk about? Okay, so we already talked about the pathogenesis, That's so really important. We talked about it being autoimmune, that's really important. Men, so that's important, that's good to know. Okay, so, yeah. The
5: guy I knew that had that stuff, that you felt a leaky gut
0: It is not common for these. So this is truly a musculoskeletal autoimmune disease. Um, was it from his meds, or was it actually from the disease? He said it was from meds. So it's like with rheumatoid arthritis, it's not common, but it's possible for the heart and the lungs and the liver to become affected. Most commonly, it's secondary to the, to the drugs, um, but it is possible. It's really not very common with the AS, but it is possible. It's really quite likely with the meds. So. So. Okay, we talked about Schober's sign for those of you that had me last semester. What's Schober's test? Yeah, what's Schober's test? Yeah, we talked about it. Okay, we will t- talk about it. So, do you remember when we did lumbar spine range of motion? And we said that. So So, it's when you take a measuring tape, remember how you guys said with range of motion you can check, you know, from your fingertips to the floor, fingertips to the floor, and then when you're checking for extension, you see how much, and then when you check for flexion, you want to see how much it goes. Okay, so if you take zero, let's say at S2, and then you go up to L1, and then you get the person to try and touch their toes. If it moves five centimeters, that's about normal. That's about the normal amount of flexion you would get in the lumbar spine. But what if it moves less than five centimeters? What if you only get let's say three centimeters worth of movement when you go to flex? That means there's decreased movement in the lumbar spine, which you might think ankylosing spondylase. its in the process of fusing. It's possible. So Schober's test is the measurement of going into flexion. So you're checking to see how much movement you have when you go into forward lumbar spine flexion. If it's five centimeters, that's a negative Schober's. If it's less than five centimeters, that's a positive Schober's. It's not 100 percent you have AS, but you may want to put this at the top of your differential list, depending on who you're dealing with. Yeah, but what if they're just super hypertonic and you're not getting a lot of movement? You would think, you would think. And you wouldn't have major exacerbations where you'd have significant amount of pain and then it would go away, but I hear you. So the other thing we talked about was, so we said it starts with the lumbar spine. So you're going to do your Schober's test and you're going to palpate, right? Because if it becomes inflamed, all your muscles are going to go into spasm, right? Everybody agree? Okay, so then lumbar spine goes into spasm and then it fuses. So what happens to those muscles? They just stay tight, but they're no longer in spasm. They just stay tight, right? Because there's no movement, they don't have to do anything. Then your SI goes into spasm. So then your glutes get really tight and go into spasm. And then they just stay tight because it eventually fuses. Then it goes into the thoracic spine. So now with the thoracic spine, you have your intervertebral discs that are fusing. You have your facet joints that are fusing, but you also also have your costal vertebral and costal transverse joints that are fusing. So what do you do? Remember we talked about this too. I
3: forget what it's called, but like- So you're gonna-
0: You're, width you're width gonna- to measure when they take a in and then when they exhale, because they wouldn't be able like they You should have at least three inches expansion. of expansion. So you're gonna put the measuring tape at nipple level and you're gonna get them to go- <laughs> and you're going to tighten it and then you're going to get them to go <gasps> and how much difference did you get in that expansion? If you got three inches or five centimeters you're good to go. If you got less than that, that's not good. Again, could give you an indication of this. Okay. But at that point, you should have already known that there was low back pain and then it went away and then lower back pain and then it went away because now it's in the thoracic spine. Does that make sense? Okay. So, bilateral sacroiliitis, what does that mean? Bilateral, okay, so the iliac, ili-itis. So the sacroiliac joints are inflamed bilaterally. What this actually looks like on an x-ray, this is actually an x-ray term, bilateral sacroiliitis. And if you see that in an x-ray report, I can't say 100% it's AS, but you're really thinking it's AS, okay? So what it looks like is, you're gonna have the edges of the SI joint, so the sacrum and the ilium, the edges are gonna be really, really white, sclerotic. Okay, they look hazy and they look really, really white. And you can't clearly see the SI joint. That tells you there's tons of inflammation in the bone and it's reacting by laying down bone. So if you see bilateral sacroiliitis on an x-ray report, they are really thinking it's a yes. So that's really important. All right, Um, so we, oh yeah. The pain and stiffness has to last for more than three months, right? This has to be a chronic thing. It's not just like I had whiplash because I was in a car accident and I have pain for two months and then it starts to get better. This is a chronic progressive disease. This is also something you cannot fix. What do you wanna do for these people? MOVE THEM! So this is what I told my patient to do, he loves golfing. So I told him, I want you to swing the golf club every day. Why? Because when he swings a glove, what's happening? He's moving his hips, he's moving his lumbar spine, he's moving his T-spine. So if he loves golfing, he's going to do it. And that's creating movement every day. He sits in a car down in Toronto, so he's an hour and a half in the car in the morning. Then he sits all day at work for his eight to nine hours. Then he sits for an hour and a half to come home again. And what's happening with no movement? Hey, let's just lay down bone. <laughs> but if you move it, could you maybe be destroying a little bit of that bone and maybe prolonging the enclosing? Yeah. Yes! So get them to move. It's so important. Hint, hint, this is probably gonna be a question at some point. Okay, your diagnostic criteria you should know decreased range of motion, so your shoulders test, your respiration, more than three months worth of pain, and then the x-ray fighting of bilateral sacroiliitis. So those are all the things you wanna look for. Now, with ankylosing spondylitis, HLA-B27 is the classic blood marker for it. So are you still gonna have high ESR? Yes, because you have inflammation. Are you still gonna have high C-reactive protein? Yes, because you have Inflammation, but they're not specific tests. HLA-B27 is your specific test. So that's your specific blood test that will help you identify that it's ankylosing spondylitis. And it's an autoimmune disease, so of course, what are these people on? Immunosuppressants. Or they'll take biologics, like um, your Enbrels, your Humira, your Remicades, those are gonna be your biologics, which will also do similar things to your immunosuppressants. Okay, so this is kind of what the progression looks like. And they literally will look like this by the end. And there will be no movement. So would you do joint play to somebody that you know the lumbar spine is fused? You could, what does it matter?
5: What does it matter?
0: No, think about it, it's fused. What are you gonna do? True. Break. But why waste your time, 100% agree. But if you did it, it's not gonna do anything. But what you might want to focus your joint play on is the next joints that are going to be affected because you want to prolong that fusion, right? So your job in this is really, 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 really important. I have SLE patients, RA patients, ankylosing spondylitis patients, and psoriatic arthritis patients. I'm going to say probably like at least monthly. So this is stuff you will see. And OA is like all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have to apply your the whole fused you, just, or do you just do those ones? You're just gonna do the joint plate to the ones that are moving. So if the thoracic spine is not fused yet, you would just start with T twelve and work your way proximally, right? Yeah. yeah, no. That would be fine. I mean you could do joint plate to the lumbar spine, but it's not gonna move. No. Alright. So psoriatic arthritis. So Dactylitis is the word you want to remember. We used to use the word sausage digit, which I think I still put it in the slides because it really classifies what you look for. What is a sausage digit? You know those breakfast sausages? Anybody eat them? Okay, but you know what they look like, right? That's what the fingers look like. So the term, when we use the term dactylitis, what does that mean? Sausage. Dactylitis. Dact means digits, itis means inflammation, so inflammation of the digits. So instead of your finger looking nice like this, your finger is going to look like this. <laughs> like a sausage digit. It looks like a sausage, big, fat, enlarged, but the whole thing,
3: okay? So the thing with psoriatic
0: arthritis and My one patient, it took a long time to diagnose him because he did not have psoriasis. It is really common with people that have psoriatic arthritis that they have psoriasis first. So they'll have psoriasis and then 10, 15, 20 years later, then they will diagnose or have the symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Which now means the joints of the hands, feet, wrists, knees are now affected. But what if, like for example, my patient, no history of psori- psoriasis and he was adopted so we don't know his parental history. So I don't know if there was familial psor- psoriasis at all. But it took him, like it was three years before he got diagnosed because again, everybody overlooked psorias- or psoriatic arthritis because he didn't have psoriasis. So if you don't know the history of the patient, don't overlook this one. But if you do know the patient, and they they know their family history, first degree relatives with psoriasis. So I don't have to have psoriasis. My dad could have psoriasis. My mom, my brother, any of those people in my world, if they have psoriasis, I can develop psoriatic arthritis without ever having psoriasis. Or I could develop psoriasis when I'm a teenager, and then in my 30s now develop psoriatic arthritis. Does that make sense? So that would be your epidemiology for who gets psoriatic arthritis. So men, women, doesn't matter. There's usually some kind of link. And again, this is autoimmune. So now that you know that, you know that there's gonna be immunosuppressants or there's gonna be biological medications, right? And your prednisones, your corticosteroids, all that kind of stuff. So this is typically mild. So the joints are being inflamed. So hands, ankles, wrists, feet, knees are becoming inflamed. So joint pain. But it's not deadly. They can usually still function. They're in pain, though. Except, and we need to know this, psoriatic arthritis mutilans. Mutilans means to mutilate. So if you have PAM, psoriatic arthritis mutilans, it is the severe form of psoriatic arthritis. And it mutilates the joints, which means it completely destroys the joints. This is aggressive. Okay, We need to know this. So to give you an idea of what it looks like, Do you see her hands? That's psoriatic arthritis renal ends. MCPs, dips and pips, completely destroyed and fused. That's not typical. Okay? Now, if you look at this picture, we're seeing some of the manifestations. You can have onycholysis, which basically means um, psoriatic nails, where the nails start to become yellow, become frail, they can sometimes pit. So if you do have someone that's got joint issues, hands, feet, ankle, wrist, knees, and they don't have psoriasis and they don't know their family history, look at the nails. They're not always affected, but they're sometimes affected, okay? So the dips love to be affected here. So if I were to ask you, the dips are painful in your patient, what diseases do you think they might have? You could say psoriatic arthritis, you could say PA, (coughs) or you could say osteoarthritis. Now, could this affect your PIPs? Yes. Could it affect your MCPs and MTPs? Yes. But this likes dips, just like OA likes dips. RA does not like dips. So again, we're starting to see some of the differentiation. This does not have to be bilateral. This could be unilateral. RA is always Bilateral. Okay. Oh, I did put in the sausages in there. Okay. So, of course, it's worse in the morning, just like anything, and then it gets better as you move around. So, usually after you move around for half an hour, an hour, it does start to get better. So, that's fine. You can still have your claw hand deformity because it's affecting the small joints of the hands and feet. And then remember about the nails being affected because that is very different than any of the other arthritis that we've talked about so far. Okay? So, the nails being affected is very different. And remember PAM. PAM is not good. What does it stand for? Psoriatic arthritis mutilans. Mutilans. And then mutilans. Because it's mutilating the joint, it's literally destroying the joints. So again, this is a really tough one to diagnose. We call this a seronegative spondyloarthropathy. So a seronegative spondyloarthropathy means there's no serum enzyme that makes this positive, which means with ankylosing spondylitis, we look for HLA-B27. Here, there's no blood marker. So other than taking an X-ray, and looking at the digits, knowing if there's psoriasis or psoriasis in the family, that's how it gets diagnosed. Or you exclude, you exclude RA, you exclude SLE, you exclude rheumatoid arthritis, you exclude AS because of the joints that are affected. But this is a hard one to diagnose because you can't say on the x-rays, the joints are not destroyed. With psoriatic arthritis mutilans, yes they are. But with typical psoriatic arthritis, they're not destroyed. And you don't have a blood marker. Your C-reactive proteins high, your ESI is high, is high. Your CT and MRI just show that there's inflammation around the joints. But what does that help you with? Could that be RA, the beginning?
1: Yes. Yep.
0: So it's hard to diagnose. This is not an easy one. So usually that's what the rheumatologist will do. They'll basically rule out all the other rheumatological conditions that would affect the small joints of the hands, feet or the knees. So they don't really look at AS, because AS doesn't affect the hands and the feet, for example. They may or may not. 80% of them do, but some don't. It's not an easy way to limit. Nope. Which sometimes this could take years to months to diagnose, because you basically have to wait and keep x-raying to see is there joint destruction, is there joint destruction. Okay, so there's no cure, it's not immune disease, so we already know what they're taking. They're taking DMARDS, which is drug-modifying anti-inflammatory, anti-rheumatic drugs, Um, biologics, immunosuppressants, prednisone, all the same stuff as all the other conditions. What are you doing for these people? You're making them move! Because what do they do? What do they want to do when they're in pain? They don't want to move. Do you want to move your hands when they cuz they hurt? No. Do you want to move your knees if they hurt? No. No! You but it, you have no, to. No, no. You have to. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, reactive arthritis would be like saying sciatica. And under sciatica, you have different things. It could be a sciatic nerve impingement, it could be a piriformis syndrome, for example, right? So reactive arthritis is the major umbrella term. And then under reactive arthritis, we have a few different conditions. The most common condition is Reiter's disease, okay? So in the video, if we watch it, the guy's gonna say reactive arthritis is the same as Reiter's disease. Well. The terms are used interchangeably because writers is the most common reactive arthritis, but it's not really oh the exact goodness. same. Okay. Applets are the most common Christian. Right. Christians is the umbrella. You, you got it.
1: Whatever. Else,
0: right? You got it. Okay. So we have a song. Here's our song. Can't see, can't pee, can't dance with me. That one says <laughs> climate tree. Whatever you want to use. Okay. But there is a triad of manifestations with reactive or with writer's disease can't see can't pee can't dance with me tells you the three things okay they can see by the way but the reason we say can't see is because it affects the eye so the three symptoms are going to be conjunctivitis which, what's the conjunctiva which you guys would have learned in neuroanatomy because you learned the anatomy of the eye Yep. What's the conjunctiva? It's
3: the eye. Somewhere
0: in the eye. It's that clear layer that covers the iris and the sclera, and the sclera is the white of the, of the eye. Cataract surgery. Right uh, well, that would increase the pressure within the conjunctiva. Okay. So conjunctivitis means. Pink eye. Uh, okay, it's not pink eye because it's it's not an infection, but it would look pink like pink eye. Right? They, they would have kind of like pus coming out of the, um, oh my God, I, this, there's actually a special name for this. But anyways, out of the corner of their eye, and it would look very red, agreed. And it would be sore, but they can see. Okay, so we just, in our song, when we say can't see, it's because it affects the eyes. Yeah? Okay. And then urethritis. What's the urethra?
2: What do you pee?
0: So it's the part from the urinary bladder out the environment, right? So if I have urethritis, inflammation of the urethra, can I pee? Well, yeah, but it's going to be? Painful. Painful. So they may have cloudy urine, which we're going to talk about later on when we talk about um, urinary tract infections, but they may have cloudy pee, they may have blood in the pee. Uh, When you do a dipstick urinalysis, they're basically going to have some blood in there. Um, It could be a little bit smelly, and it'll usually be painful to pee. Okay, so those are can't see and can't pee, but yes, they can see and yes, they can pee. And then can't dance with me or can't climb a tree, whatever you want to use, is just saying the arthritis component. Oh, yeah, that's supposed to be arthritis. So the arthritis here really likes the knee. I mean, it could be anywhere, but it really likes the knee. So the other thing we need to know about react- a writer's disease is this is a self-limiting disease. What does that mean? So RA was chronic and progressive. Ankylosing spondylitis was chronic and progressive. Psoriatic arthritis was chronic and progressive. The
3: activities of daily living affected are dependent on person to person. It's not, it could get worse or it could get better. So self-limiting on.
0: means it's gonna go away. Oh. I thought I was just dependent. Like, no. So the great thing about this is if you want any of these arthritides, this is the one you want. Because after three, six, nine months, even a year, guess what? Guess what? It just goes away. You're fine. So I know, weird, right? So this is the thing. There's two reasons that you would develop writer's disease. And it's actually going to be either a genital urinal issue, so oftentimes it's a sexually transmitted disease, like chlamydia, for example, would cause it. Or it was a gastrointestinal bug, like um, Shigella or um, Camper Bacterial or, uh, I don't know, E. coli, right? Any of those that cause a gastrointestinal disease. So what happens is your body is trying to fight this gastrointestinal disease or this STD. And then for some reason, which we don't know why, the immune system starts to recognize your conjunctiva, your urethra, and your joints, usually of the knee, as an antigen. And then your immune system starts fighting them. So you have inflammation. But the bug, whatever it was, that got you sick, you were sick for maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, then you were fine. And then it could be weeks or months later, all of a sudden, now you're having eye problems, peeing problems, and you're having knee problems. You need to ask the questions if they were ill prior to. Did you have the flu? Did you have, were you sick? Did you have, like, um,
3: food poisoning,
0: right? Did you have an STD? Because if they didn't have those things, it's probably not writer's disease. It always comes from a GI infection or an STD, or a genital urinal infection, first. So that would be easy to rule in or out in your history. Yeah? Okay, that's important. So oftentimes, this likes men. They used to call this the um, sailor's disease because sailors would get STDs and then they would develop these symptoms, but not so much anymore. But anyways, they used to call it sailor's disease because it was oftentimes caused by sexually transmitted diseases. But it does like males. So the other thing that will happen, so we don't know the cause, but we believe it is autoimmune, but then all of a sudden it just rectifies itself and goes away. So it is self-limiting. If there were to be a blood marker, it would be HLA-B27. So a similar blood marker to what you have in ankylosing spondylitis. Sometimes it's not there. So it's not a huge one. It's not like, oh, if you've got HLA-B27, you definitely have writers. But it's one of the things, again, that we look for. Now... Enthesopathy is something that happens. We're almost done. So where um, tendons attached to bones become inflamed as well in this disease. So it really likes, for example, like where the quads attach into the patella, or where the Achilles attach into the calcaneus, or where the plantar fascia attaches into the, Achille- into the calcaneus. So those attachment points will oftentimes become inflamed. So the term they used for this is called lover's heel because it used to be a sailor's disease because of STDs and then all of a sudden they started complaining about their knees and their eyes and they'd complain about peeing and then all of a sudden they'd say, oh my god, my heel hurts. So that's how it all got connected. So you will see enthesopathy which means inflammation of where the tendons attach into bone which is very common around the calcaneus. Okay, that's the most common area which is why we call it lover's heel. So recap, you need to know it's self-limiting. It does like males, but it could be anybody. GI or GU bug, okay, so an STD or a gastrointestinal um, infection. And you need to know your triad, so know your song. What's the song? Can't Can't see, can't can't pee, 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 can't climb climb a tree. tree or dance with me, whatever works for you. Okay, and that basically gives you your three primary symptoms. So this could go away in three months. This could go away in six months. This could go away in nine months. It could take a year. But usually within a year, you're fine. So what do you do for these people when they're inflamed or when they're in pain? Get them to move! We should all have that song, I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it, right? Okay, because that is, that is the
2: end of
3: it.
0: That is the story for today. We need to move, move our patients. Okay.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, any questions? No, no, you're good to go. But any questions?
4: Yeah.
0: Please know the differences between the arthritis. Compare and contrast them. What's the same and what's different? Because then you'll have an idea of
2: a the marks questions the I would ask
0: I put it in the I put it on blackboard